everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the podcast where good taste and bad taste collide. Meow! Yes, also they meow. Thank you, Whitney. Uh, my name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic for The Rap and Bloody Disgusting. Everybody calls me Bebs. My name is Pip Pip Diggle. <laughs> I am a jellical critic. <laughs> and my shtick is I leave dead mice in your slippers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I saw a movie called Cats this week, and it's driven me totally bloody insane. You guys, Cats is one of the weirdest things. Not, not weirdest films. Weirdest things. Cats, the movie Cats, mm. is the kind... We're going to review it in a second. Mm. It's the kind of, like, what the fuck you mm. forgot Hollywood was capable of doing yeah. at that scale. Yeah. Like, you, like we, they threw <laughs> money at this weirdo piece of... Anyway. My, my real name is Whitney Seibold. I'm yeah. a film critic for IGN and other outlets that will have me from time to time. And this week, uncritically acclaimed, uh, we're reviewing a bunch of new movies. Uh, mm. We're reviewing Cats, as you probably heard uh little women 1917 and and we're gonna save this one for last even though it's the big one of the week because mm-hmm. we want to be able to review the film and then talk a bit about some spoilers and we'll of course give you a big warning we're gonna be reviewing star wars the rise of skywalker i keep wanting to call it rise of the skywalker doesn't it seem like that like, would yeah. be better cadence mm-hmm. like return like, of the jedi rise uh, of the skywalker uh, passion of the christ whatever Attack you got of the clones yeah, yeah it, Rise of the Skywalker. Yeah, but no. There can be a the Skywalker, that's fine. Well, we'll talk about that when we talk about the film. Um, So yeah, these are the films that are opening this weekend. A few of them are opening next weekend on Christmas. We wanted to get those out of the way for two reasons. One, Whitney is going out of town and we need to bank an episode. Uh, And secondly, uh, after this episode, we are going to be focusing on the best and worst films of the year. And then the best and worst films of the decade. So because that's four episodes, like, are kind of just, like, coming up, they're going to be huge. Big, long ones. Our, our list episodes are usually pretty big. Yeah. And, we and take those, them very seriously. And those are big lists, and, uh, yeah, we're going to be ranking some of our favorites. But we're very excited about that. Those will come after Christmas, but before Christmas, we wanted to make sure you were ready and, and able to make key decisions about what to watch at the multiplex. It's actually a really good year for film overall. Uh, there are a ton of movies, a lot of independent movies, some of them we reviewed last week, like Uncut Gems and A Hidden mm-hmm. Life, that are absolutely worth your time. You should definitely check them out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a few left that we hadn't gotten to yet, and I'm very excited. And um, fuck it, let's start with Cats. <laughs> Cats okay. is based on a Broadway musical, which was, which in turn was based on work a bunch of poems by T.S. Eliot. Mm-hmm. And here is the plot of Cats. They're cats. Well, it's based on Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats by T.S. Eliot, which is just a collection of poems. Yeah. There's not like a through line. It's not a story. They're just all about cats. And each poem is about a different cat, and each cat has a different habit. Clearly, T.S. Eliot was just watching his pets or the cats living in the alleyway downstairs and sussing out their personalities and putting them in kind of light, almost Lewis Carroll-esque nonsense poetry. Which is fun. And have, all of that's fun. Cats have, totally deserve that yeah, treatment. They, that's, a, that's a wonderful thing to do for cats. cutesy names, like... Rum Tum Tugger and Rumple Teaser and Mungo Jerry yeah. and and Skiddly Winky Dinky Dink Skiddle yeah. Morinky Do <laughs> an old old Deuteronomy. Yeah, I made up one of those. Yeah, I, I wonder which. And, uh, <laughs> Andrew Lloyd Webber in his in his finite wisdom and in his thimble sized cup of wisdom. <laughs> Decided to turn this into not just a musical, but an opera, mm. where there's it's just singing all the way through. No no dialogue, no, not much of a plot. The plot, such as it is, mm. that they put together for the play, and then they added a few other wrinkles for the movie, which we'll talk about. Um, but the plot is, uh, once a year, 
all of the cats, these these particular cats are jellical cats. Mm. They never actually explain what that means. But they're jellical cats evidently, and they're, uh, they do jellical things. And, um, evidently, um, Nick Lemire, Christy Lemire's young son, went mm. to see cats with her, and he thought they were saying genital cats, <laughs> which, which in a weird way would have made more sense. And we'll talk about how weird this movie is in a second. Uh, but again, every year, all the cats get together, and all of the cats present their case for why they should be this year's jellical choice. The jellical choice gets to die. They get to go to cat heaven. And be reincarnated as a new cat. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not a nine lives thing. It's just like eternal recurrence for these I, cats. I guess. And But you mm-hmm. have to be chosen mm-hmm. specifically by the oldest cat, Deuteronomy, uh, to, yeah, be chosen. And, and mm-hmm. so it's very cult-like and weird. It's, just in its just well, in its basic concept, and and we have to really fight to remind ourselves of the premise because this film is so loosely constructed. The musical, first of all, is just yeah. a dance spectacular. I think that's what Cats was is really best known for uh, in terms of its stage legacy. It's not the music, it's not the characters, which but, are fine. But it, it's the, by choreo- the way. it's the choreography. There was this new kind of. Uh, and and Broadway experts will correct me on this, but I'm, I think there was this new type, like this new style of modern dance that had never reached that scale before. Well, I mean, here's the thing on on, on the Broadway stage. I, I've never seen Cats live. Mm-hmm. My my wife and partner Michelle House, mm-hmm. uh, and she's talked to me a lot about it. I've seen parts of like the the they filmed a production, and you can watch the production of Cats like mm-hmm. on video. Um, the thing with Cats as a live action, as a show, mm-hmm. like when you're there, you're present, is that that level of choreography and physical movement is extremely immediate. Mm-hmm. And it has a very different impact than if you're watching a bunch of people with CGI bodies just frolic. <laughs> well, when you're watching it on stage, yeah, there's a bunch of people in, in these really, uh, bo- like, Full body stockings. Type, type full yeah. body stockings. And they've got, you know, big tufts of fur glued to those stockings, and they've got cat makeup. But when they're dancing, you can see them dancing. You can see them actually flying through the air. Yeah, and, the, and they've taken you, on the physical persona mm. of cats. They've done the work. They, they know how to act in a way that when mm. they move their arms, you say to yourself, if my cat was a biped, that's how it would totally move. I totally see that. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. all of that was a big part of the stage production. Uh, Tom Hooper, in his thimble-sized cup of wisdom, mm-hmm. decided to do away with the idea of the bodysuits. Mm. He didn't want to make an animated film, which would have made perfect sense. Yeah, make them actual cats. Yeah, like that that just bipedal, anthropomorphic, animated cats. Or take away bipedal, fine. I don't give a shit. But here's the thing, though. But he, he, he decided really instead... Halfway in the middle. Yeah, he decided to uh, do the movie version of those body stockings, and that is he dressed his cast in wetsuits... And he gave them realistic CGI fur bodies and realistically twitching tails and erased their human ears, which is really disturbing. Yep. And gave them, like, cat ears on the tops of their heads that, like, are really expressive CGI cat ears. Mm -hmm. It is fucking nightmare fuel. It is really Uh, weird, and it misses the entire point. Like, when you you make cats into a movie, uh which I think was probably a dumb idea, but... Regardless, when you make cats into the movie, mm. you're not fixing cats. <laughs> it's not like, you know what the problem with cats the show was? They weren't CGI cats. They weren't cat-like enough. No, like they yeah. were cat-like exactly the right amount. That was a very popular <laughs> stage play mm. because it was enjoyable to watch in the immediate vicinity mm. of these cat people. Yeah. When you make them off 
pudding when you take away the sort of the, the. I was talking this over with Michelle on the way home, and what she was talking about was when you CGI something like this, we know we're looking at math. Well, and, when, when, and, uh, when we're seeing actual people do actual things, there's a part of our brain that connects to it and goes, "Ooh!" Mm. But when it's you know it's CGI, it takes some of that away, and it might still be entertaining. But it's the difference between, say, it's the difference between a real painting and a, a, a just a photograph of somebody standing next to a painting. Well, I want I want to put it in cinematic terms, so I'm gonna mm. I'm gonna compare it to this. Um, it is the difference between. Uh, watching two CGI superheroes fight each other in a CGI landscape mm-hmm. and watching a whole bunch of motorcycles jump over a moving truck in Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, yeah, one when, is real and one isn't. When you're um, watching Fury Road, there's a part of you that goes, oh shit, they really did that. Yeah. <laughs> and that's true with dancing well, as well. And, that, and when you I take away is, the, the, the dancing yeah. and make it not as impressive because of how you CGI'd everything... Mm-hmm. You take away the entire point of cats. Well, and in the CGI, you know, they're they're painting over these dancers' entire bodies, so there's this weird kind of jerky quality. Like the effects aren't good enough. Oh, some to of them captured are... the actual dancing. Some, some of, of them, them are terrible. Yeah, some of the CGI looks like they're just created out of whole cloth. You don't. There probably wasn't even a dancer there for some of it. Well, some of those uh, c- some of the CGI looks mm. really embarrassing. Like if you look at um, the CGI collar that Rebel Wilson's cat is wearing, mm. it looks like it was animated for a movie in like 1990. Seven, yeah, like it yeah. looks really fucking rushed. But yeah, the the reality of this film is so bizarre. Uh, but ignoring that for a moment, if you're going to do it, do the dance. And there's a few moments where a few moments, yeah, where we get to see some dancing. Uh, the lead actress is named Francesca Hayward. She's a huge deal in the ballet world. She's okay. like the, the I think the head of the Royal Royal Ballet Company. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, I think, her film debut. That's that's how the movie touts it, anyway. Yeah, yeah. and she she's a, a white cat. I think her name she's named Victoria uh, or Ver- Victoria Veronica. I forgot one of those. A V, a, a V name cat, yeah. and yeah. See if I can she is uh, sort of the new cat in this group, and she is allowed to express herself pretty much solely through dance. She has a few bits of songs, she has a few uh, bits of dialogue, but mostly she's the audience that the other cats are performing for, and she mm-hmm. gets to respond through dance. She's clearly a very talented dancer. She very doesn't just so. dance well, she moves like a dancer. She is confident in dressing like a CGI cat <laughs> and cavorting on gigantic furniture. She actually has a good deal of confidence. I wish Tom Hooper, the director, had the confidence to actually film her, because... <laughs> Tom Hooper also did Les Miserables, and his shtick with Les Miserables is he's going to put the camera right on the singers' faces, and we get to sort of appreciate them singing in real time. They're actually singing. It's good. Mm-hmm. I Dream to Dream well, some of them is, is implacable. Well, okay, maybe not Russell Crowe. Yeah. But <laughs> it, it's, it's a fine approach to it, it, a musical like Les Mis. Um, specifically like Les Mis, yes. Mm. Um, it's not the best... Best production of Les Mis. I should hope I think, not. I think there are some really good numbers in it, but yeah, it's not the best production of Les Mis. Um, he kind of got stuck in that I'm going to film everybody from the shoulders up mentality, which doesn't work when you're filming a fucking dancer. Yeah. He's filming dancers. He's not filming their feet. There, You can count the number of shots where you can actually see the dancers' feet in this. And I'm not mm-hmm. sure if he was afraid of showing the weird CGI mismatch between their feet and the CGI floors. Well, I mean, there's some... Which can happen sometimes. Some of them are wearing sliding, shoes. There's yeah. one of the cats that actually does a lot of tap dancing. Yeah. And, and that cat is wearing shoes, so that one they show the feet all the time. He's, he's wearing tap... Well, but you don't see a lot of the bare feet, though. 
Well, and you don't see his feet a lot. There's a, cl- a few close-ups of his feet, but most of it is from the knees up. Mm. It's like he's tap dancing. And, I just and remember that, seeing his feet more than you. Uh, yeah, and exactly. and then there, he he's this is the rail. What is that? Uh, the, the railway, railway cat. cat. Yeah. It was the railway cats. I don't know. Red, uh, Rump, it wasn't Rumble Teaser. Well, they're all <laughs> they're all cats. Um, yeah. Mr. 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 Captain Mungo Jerry. No. Hang on. There's a lot of cats that are. <laughs> well, I want I want to credit the actual it's not dancer because he's actually really. Jellylorium, mm. Crookshank, Skimbleshank, Skimbleshank, played by Stephen McRae. Stephen McRae, who is like a legit good dancer, Clearly. and his number takes them out onto the rails, and there's this big, ugly, ugly CGI mess of a railway system mm-hmm. with all these miniature cat people dancing in a line, and Tom Hooper decided to keep the camera 60 feet away from them, <laughs> where we see them really, really tiny. The important thing is that we see they're in a city. We see they're in a city that looks like shit. <laughs> it really This does. is one of the ugliest films, like the, the weird, hazy, black, not distinct photography. They're clearly filming on some like gigantic sets to make the human mm. actors look cat-sized, which is another bizarre choice. But there's no sense of actually like geography or continuity between the scenes. We no. just sort of drift from one well, set piece to the next. Also, it turns out some cats can teleport. Some cats can te- yeah, have magical powers. Okay, this is something where apparently magical powers is a thing, but... When T.S. Eliot writes a poem and says this cat can teleport, that's kind of poetic and playful and fun. But here's the thing. Here it's literal. (laughs) Well, not only is it literal, um, apparently that's not in the play. Mm. Like, though, there's a whole bit, like, so the whole play is cats introduce themselves as cats, Mm. and then Deuteronomy goes, that one, and then we're done. The movie is like, well, that's not really a plot. So what they decided to do was to take a cat named McCavity, played Mm. by Idris Elba, who normally can do no wrong, as far as I'm concerned. I think oh, he's he, a really good he's actor. He's done plenty of He's uh, been in bad movies, but he's usually good in them. Oh, okay, fair. That's my point. Um, and and to his credit, he's trying here. Some people, some actors, <laughs> I, I want to give him shout-outs. Uh, some actors get away with this. Some do not. Hmm. Idris Elba tries and does not. I think I think uh, Ian McKellen, c- clearly, <laughs> clearly quite drunk, uh, was... <laughs> Was the only one who was really kind of on the wavelength of this big piece of stupidity well, that he's I, in. I also think he's playing the right character, but let's talk about that mm-hmm. in a second. Right. Um, McCavity is a cat who is like, a, he, he's spoken of in hushed tones. Oh, he's he's, he's like vil- Harry Lyme. Everyone knows vil- him. The villain of the cat universe. And the whole thing is apparently in the play, he, he shows up and he's just like, I'm a cat. And I'm a big old jerk. Yeah, he, wears, he wears a coat and a cat hat. Yeah. And whether, uh, or, not, whether it, or not the coats they wear are parts of their bodies is to be debated. A, but, yeah. Rebel Wilson cat unzips her fur and has other fur underneath it, and it is a terrifying image. She does it <laughs> twice, and it freaks me the fuck out. And, but uh, McCavity she, she, is. She takes is, off her skin, and then she eats cockroaches that are also played by actors in cockroach suits. Also, what the fuck is that shit? <laughs> what the hell are you doing? But what in, the hell is this movie? But again, the plot, the plot, the plot that they added mm. for this is McCavity wants to be the Jellicle choice this year, mm. and so he is, every time someone's done with their Jellicle song, mm. he like goes up to them and says, Ha ha, now you're fairy dust! And they go, Oh no, we're fairy dust! And then they teleport away. <laughs> Onto a barge in the Thames. Yeah! Mm. They teleport them to a barge in the Thames where he changes them up, and they're overseen by an evil cat played by... Ray Winstone. Ray Winstone. <laughs> what the fuck? 
I, I just want to say Ray, see Ray Winstone like in the wetsuit, like in, in the motion <laughs> capture suit. I want to see this entire movie without the CG. That would have been great. I want that as a special feature yeah. on the home video release. I just want to see it. The, just, the I just want to see film, what it looked yeah. like because it must have been weird. Yeah. Um, but basically, everyone gets a big number. Some are better than others. Yeah. Ian McKellen plays an old stage cat mm. who was used in various plays. And he plays it with the depth mm. of an actor who has been on the stage and has actual stories, mm. and he nails it. And there was a great bit where he's walking out on stage, and for luck, he says, touch wood. But instead of just touching wood, he, like, rubs his head against it like a cat. <laughs> it, that, that is such a sublime moment he's, in this, this weird, weird, weird film. He's delightful. There's, there's an outsider cat as well that they won't, they're not letting perform. And that's Grisabella. Grisabella, played by Jennifer Hudson, who looks even, I think they erased, like, large chunks of her head. Not just her ears. No, she her head it's looks like they, weird. They sh- it's like they shrunk down all of their heads. Yeah, but uh, I will and, say. But here's the thing with Jennifer Hudson. Mm-hmm. Boy, can she sing? She can sing really well, and she, she can sings sing the, and act at the same time, which not everyone can do. She sings the big barn burner number that everybody knows from Cats, which is memory and uh, fine. Nails uh, it. I've, I've, Nails it. I, I kind of hate the song, but she does it well. No, she uh, she she gives the scene exactly what it needs. She, she nails uh, it. It's implied that she's like a cat sex worker, and she's yeah, shamed she's a out of cat. out of cat society. Cats have sex workers, which is something I can't. I'm having trouble wrapping my head around. It's pretty weird. Mm. Um, and again, no judgment there. And I'm, I'm, it's actually kind of weird that all the cats are super judgy about this. Mm. Like, what the fuck, cats? Everyone, here's the thing with cats. The, the movie, I haven't seen the, all of the play, I've only seen the bits. God, cats. In the movie, every single actor, with mm-hmm. possible exception of Serena McKellen and Jennifer Hudson, it's like the only direction Tom Hooper gave them, other than dance around and get the choreographer to do that, was look like you're horny. <laughs> Everyone is really breathless and eager yeah. to touch each other and looking at each other really expectantly. Yeah. And all of them look like they really want it. When Ian McKellen is singing uh-uh. to Judy Dench Cat. Oh, they're, they're lusting after each other. Judy hard. Dench Cat is like laying down in a, in a large human sized basket uh-huh. and purring and stretching her legs out akimbo. And it's just sort of like, I mean, I guess good for them, but. It's weird, and every single scene, every single character interaction is really weirdly, erotically charged. That's so weird, you guys, to watch a movie that is this turned on all the time and never acts on it. It never even, they're never even yeah. like, there's no cats who just sort of walk off the side. It's like, excuse us a minute. They mm. come back smoking a cigarette. Like, cat cigarette. We're back. Okay, moving on. Uh, the one performer who avails themselves the best is weirdly Taylor Swift. She sings the McCavity song. Mm-hmm. As, uh, as sort of McCavity's groovy. She, Apparently, that's supposed to be a duet, but they gave both sides to Taylor Swift. I mean, you, you hire Taylor, Taylor Swift. You get her to A, write a song, which mm. she did for the movie, and uh, with, also with, uh, uh, with Weber, Andrew Lloyd Weber. Which actually fits into the movie okay. It's fine. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. fine. They're worse songs uh, i i ha, i have nothing for or against taylor swift i'm neutral on the taylor swift issue i know we're supposed to have opinions i really don't care um <laughs> she's I'll fine say, i'll she's say this, totally fine no, this she actually fails, avails herself really well because she sings kind of a cabaret number and her cat is given like these sexy pumps yeah and she sprinkles drugs on everybody like it's this catnip. glittery yeah. catnip and everybody gets high and passes out while she sings about macavity it's the only time where like it, it doesn't make sense but it feels like it should yeah <coughs> you okay? Yeah. But, 
Apart from that, everybody, even Francesca Hayward, they all seem really lost. Okay. Oh, and, and, and Mungo Jerry and Rumple Teaser, those two actors, uh-huh. I think they're also uh, stage veterans. They're not screen veterans. Yeah, I got that impression. And they seemed a little bit more at ease, but they they just have one number. The uh, the all the, the all the film stars seem completely lost. Okay, and I especially I, mm. Judy Dench. <laughs> I don't know. She Judy Dench she, is in a weird area. She doesn't area know here. where she is. She doesn't know what she's just sort of. There's a bit at the end where she finally <sighs> gets to like she sort of sing talks like some yeah. actual T. S. Eliot at the end. She says it right to the camera, mm. and you can tell like. At last, she's home. She's doing a monologue. She's doing a monologue, and you can tell Tom Hooper just said, "Okay, this is this is T. S. Eliot poetry. You can latch onto that." Oh, I got that. Do I have to wear the wetsuit? Yeah, yeah, you have to wear the wetsuit because we have to we have to make you look like a monstrosity while you do it. <laughs> um, the the person who really sticks out like a sore thumb in this uh-huh. is Rebel Wilson. <laughs> I like Rebel Wilson. Uh-huh. I like Rebel Wilson. She's been good in a lot of movies. Uh, she's asked to do the same thing over and over again, mm-hmm. and it's. Getting a little grating, and I'm sure it's grating to her. And you can see her last year try to break out mm. of this sort of bombastic, you know, funny friend role mm-hmm. that she had played even really well in like movies like Pitch Perfect and Pitch Perfect 2. But then you saw her, and she was in that Anne Hathaway movie, that remake of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, or she was in that uh, mm. Isn't It Romantic, that yeah, romantic comedy where she was I didn't the see lead. I wanted to see that one. Yeah, uh, but she was trying, you can tell she's trying to break out of that a little bit. And mm-hmm. here, she, they just turn it into a long fat joke. Yeah, and the yeah. entire thing, and and apparently that's not even the character. They just added that because it's Rebel Wilson, which is pretty fucking dehumanizing. Which is ironic when you're cats, mm. but it's still pretty. It it, it it's shitty, and it's like the second number mm. in the whole movie. Just a long fat joke, and then there's another fat joke with the James Corden cat. That's another fat song about cat cats who eat too much and, and are very happy to be eating a lot. Yeah, at least he's talking about it with Rebel Wilson. It's just like. Why are we here, man? The whole song is about how you're a bored kitchen cat who makes all of like the various vermin in the kitchen dance for you. It's not about that other stuff. I don't know why we needed that. The James Corden song is though. That it's, yeah, yeah, it's that one actually. Yeah. Like, I'm not saying I think that one's mm. cool either necessarily, but at least it's about that. Mm. At least there's a reason that's in there. Uh, um, there's this is crazy. This movie's just. Freaking crazy! I'm, so remind, I'm reminded weird. Of, of stuff like Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, yeah. or or the Apple, just a lot, or Xanadu, like these big, completely misguided, glitzy Hollywood moneyed musicals that are based on maybe workable ideas at some point in their production, but at some point just became completely untenable. Yeah, but they go for it anyway. Oftentimes, there are directors who just hmm. don't know the material, don't really yeah, know how the musical works. They or, like the idea of a musical, but they're not theater people, or they're um, vanity projects that get out of hand you know yeah. here here's so tom, I, tom yeah. hooper is really really trying to go for uh let's look back to les miserables he's really Please. trying to go for something really realistic and if he's going to use that same kind of filmmaking technique we're going to see the dancers and see the singing and it's all going to be about the numbers then why are you going well out of your way to make it look as ugly and fake as possible why are you erasing you. the human's body you know what's really fucking weird if you're going to try to if your your camera work is meant to hide Highlight who they are. The weirdest one mm. of all of these is when uh, Idris Elba cat McCavity. Mm. Most of the movie, he's he's you know looks like a cat, but he's like wearing a wide brimmed hat mm. and a jacket. Now, a lot of a lot of cats have these sort of human accoutrements. Mm. One of them is a one of them is a ma- is a magician cat, mm. so he's got a little top hat, cute. But Idris Elba has been showing up the entire film looking like 
you know, someone out of a crime movie. Mm-hmm. And then when he does his big number with Taylor Swift, mm-hmm. he removes the hat, he removes the jacket, and that's when you see, kind of to your horror, that his body is actually this, like, his fur is the same shade as Idris Elba's skin tone, uh-huh. and it looks, it looks like, like he's, he's just, naked, yeah. it looks like he's just a naked Ken doll. <laughs> <laughs> and just dancing around. And no matter how much Idris Elba is trying here, and again, I respect him for trying. I respect everyone he's, for he's trying the, in this movie. He's the only one who got, like, cat eyes. Did you notice yeah, that? Notice they give him, like, weird? weird, like, greeny cat eyes. I kind of wish they'd gone for it with mm. everyone else, but I guess they wanted to make him look evil, you know, like mm. a cat. Why are you against cats, cats? But Idris Elba is trying, and the movie lets him down so hard. Mm. Like, this is weird and here's my ultimate takeaway from cats Mm -hmm. i don't know if i recommend it or not because (laughs) this kind this kind of spectacular well-moneyed misfire Mm -hmm. is really rare nowadays so many of the big budgeted movies are made by committee Mm -hmm. and they're trying to be as safe as humanly possible Mm -hmm. we're going to review one of those later in this episode but they're made in such a way that they can kind of only be so bad. Mm. This is another level. This is, I don't know if it's so bad it's good, but it's so bad it's, it's fascinating. A, it's really, really, yeah, it, it is I, a I can't weird... tell you not to see it. You will be fascinated by what's going on. Yeah, I, I, I a, a good hate watch is good hate watch. What can I say? <laughs> and uh, not that you should go in like to ballyhoo no. this thing. You should just sort of witness just what this is. Maybe you can figure it out. Um, <laughs> uh, because uh, Tom Hooper clearly has no idea what, oh, what is going on in none. this thing. I don't think Andrew Lloyd Webber has any idea. <laughs> Andrew Lloyd Webber um, just did a thing with a bunch of cat monologues and somehow it was a hit. That's uh, it. Yeah. It was not complicated. Also, uh, I need to take a moment to say that I, I despise Andrew Lloyd Webber. I, I hate, hate, hate his, his music. <laughs> I hate him, this person, for writing that music. He has this really insidious uh, style where he's able to come up with one really catchy, not song, just one really catchy phrase mm. that doesn't conclude. So, And that one phrase will repeat ad infinitum in your brain. Mm. So it like feels a, like it's of a piece. It, it feels like it's like, um, think of Phantom of the Opera. You know, it has that da 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 dum da dum da da dum da 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 Da, 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 like it just repeats over and over and over again. Yeah, if you have like a, that, if you have like work. a three second music box, that's great. Right, Umbrellas of Cherbourg, that's all that is, and that's one of the best musicals ever made. But there's a lot more modulation to that, and there's all a lot right. more modulation in the mood and the color and the filmmaking and the performances. Don't you dare <laughs> drag the Umbrellas of Cherbourg into this. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I, from the stories were already out that Tom Hooper was working on this up until like the very hour of its premiere. He, that's like, not uncommon. Up. That's not uncommon. That's actually yeah. not uncommon. Uh, we, think... we, 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 we talk shit about mm. a lot of movies because like, oh my God, mm. did you hear there was a three and a half hour original cut? Yeah, that's standard. It's called a work print. You yeah. put everything in the movie and then you see what you can take out because mm. it's obviously too long. You shot too much. That's how every movie works. You shoot everything and then yeah. you cut and make a movie out of it. Oh my that's God. Did, editing is. Oh my God. Did you hear they did reshoots on this movie? 
movie? They do, they do reshoots, reshoots on, on every, every movie. movie. It's part of the plan. You yeah. know you're going to miss something, or there's a, a scene that's not going to quite work, or something that needs to be explained better. Something, you always yeah. plan that in a larger scale production. Sometimes These are not inherently bad things. There's to reshoot something, but then like weather changed, or a set changed, or an actor changed, and now it doesn't yeah. match other footage, and now you have to shoot reshoot that footage. It's, yeah. it's all part of the filmmaking process. It's yeah. common. So like the uh, fact that so, this movie was going but, down to the wire is not in and of itself strange. It's not that strange, but uh, Tom Hooper at the premiere, and I, I read this in, I think, in the Hollywood Reporter, one, the of, one, of, one of the trades, that he got up on stage and said, you know, v- clearly very exhausted because he was up for a long time working on the movie, saying this, I hope you enjoy this movie I made. This is about, what do you call it, the perils of tribalism. This is not about the perils of tribalism. What? There's nothing about I, any I don't, of that. I don't know what, There's like, no perils of, what? No. Celebrating it. Like, so it's un- all unless, about how awesome this is. Unless he thinks that the cats are all awful and this whole making the jellical choice is like, it's like Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. Look, there's a very thin line mm-hmm. if you really want to think about it between the structure of cats and the structure of the Wicker Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really I, is. Like Maybe you, that's you, what was going on in Tom Hooper's head. It's not in his movie. No. I, I don't know what the hell is in his movie. I can't figure out what the hell is any, is on anybody's head. No. Uh, I think they're all totally lost. Yeah. Some of them say, well, I'll just dance. They're clearly <laughs> just there to do one thing. And run in the opposite direction, and yet somehow they managed to cobble together a gigantic Hollywood blockbuster out of this mishmash. And and it's it's one of the ugliest, strangest things I've seen from the Hollywood machine in a long, long time. And I was never bored. (laughs) I was I was outraged, but like I think that's worse. I was captivated by how weird and bad this was. There are moments of, of quality here and there. And again, Ian McKellen's quite good. Some of the some of the yeah. actors and dancers are yeah, but quite good. We're just good. picking out little bits. I'm, of I'm things, just saying, I just yeah. want to give credit where credit is due because sometimes when you give a pan, mm-hmm. you know, a, a really broad pan, like you're just saying this is not good. Uh-huh. It's easy to forget that like it's a big ensemble thing. Some people did their job and did it well. You want to give mm-hmm. credit where credit is due, but it all kind of comes together in what the fuckery. Right. <laughs> and again, I just mm-hmm. don't know if no. I can tell someone. Someone um, when I tweeted. Uh, how I felt about Star Wars Rise mm. of the Skywalker, which we'll go into detail later about how that was. Mm. Someone asked, why should I believe you? You gave positive reviews to Excellent. all of these yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, not every movie I'm judging on the same scale. Sometimes I recommend people see things because it's so fucking weird. Mm. So I have not decided, because we do on the critically acclaimed yeah. scale, C minus C plus. I haven't decided this is a C minus or a C plus. Well, I haven't decided. I will decide uh, by the end of the episode. Here, here's something I've taken from Dave White, a very good critic and, oh, yeah. and friend of the show. I know um, his philosophy. Yeah, he, uh, he he used to write for movies.com and the, he was assigned a star scale. He had to give it between zero and five stars yeah, on that, that website. Yeah. And uh, you know, five stars, great, must see. I think I've, anything above three and a half, I think, was his his was, was definite recommendation. Definite recommendation. Yeah. Uh, the worst review he could give, the films he just outright loathed and wanted to warn you away from, he gave one half of a star. Yeah, he saved the zero star rating for something that is so unbelievably bad that you must see it right away. Yeah. Uh, the Oogie Loves and the Big Balloon Adventure, he gave zero stars. And, this, and this boy, do you really, have to yeah. see that thing. Golly, do you gotta see it. What be, a weird film. Let's have that as a double feature with Cats. Ooh. Um, no. No, I think the <laughs> ultimate double feature with Cats would be Gaspar Noe's Climax. But uh, um, I don't like that movie, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> I, was thinking, I was thinking about just Climax bo- a lot. Both about just an insanely weird to look at, not very, like, a deliberately unattractively shot movies about people just going mad on a dance floor. Yeah. No, I, I, I see what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I see what you're doing. Um, but uh, I think Cats 
fits into the Dave White scale of zero stars. This is something yeah. that is is unbelievably bad, completely misguided. Nothing is working in any of this. The music is terrible. The orchestrations, I mean, the, the musical came out in the early 80s, and the orchestrations clearly are taking their cues, so a lot of it is just synth music. It's like Casio keyboard-level yeah. orchestration. It's not real instruments. Yeah. Which makes it sound cheap. Or maybe that was so just a deliberate weird, choice, but it sounds cheap and tinny to my ears. Yeah. No, some of it. Some of it's really weird. Yeah, this thing is just so weird and so misguided. Nothing is working and everything is ugly that you'd need to just get bombed and watch it. Just, yeah. Seriously, yeah, like yeah, even, if you miss some, it in theaters, I don't blame you. Some but edibles into the theater <laughs> when this is when this is streaming. Do not miss an opportunity to watch this. I'll say this right now: when it's like zero effort to go see it, uh-huh. do not miss this fucking weird thing. But we got to move on. But, um, what I would love to see is yeah. this one to beat Star Wars at the box office. Oh. So I'm going to encourage you to skip Star Wars and see Cats instead. That'd be fine. I'm fine with that. Uh, let's move on. Uh, uh, there's a couple movies opening next week. These are big, major movies for major filmmakers. Um, Oscar contenders. The big Christmas releases. Which one do you want to review first? Little Women or 1917? Uh, let's do 1917 first. All right, 1917 is the latest film from Sam Mendes. Uh, mm-hmm. Sam Mendes uh, made a big debut in 1999 with his. Uh, he was a, a theater director and he made his theatrical uh, film debut uh, directing American Beauty, which mm-hmm. immediately went on to win Best Picture, and now it's sort of like. But okay, it it, it, it dated very poorly. Very it, poorly. it was it was very much a, like a, of a, its exact t- a snapshot of exactly where we were right in 1999. Like three years later, it was already dated. It's been interesting to see Sam Mendes um, sort of grow as a filmmaker mm-hmm. um, because he's he tends to do sort of ambitious projects, but sometimes they just they just airball completely. Mm-hmm. Like Jarhead is actually like a really mm-hmm. jarring movie about war and how sort of we train these guys to kill, but modern warfare doesn't work the way it used to. Mm-hmm. And they're just sort of there with their guns, not sure what to do, but know that they hate. Like, it's a really, it's a good movie, actually. I think it's really mm. excellent. I did Road to Perdition, which is based on a comic book that was sort of uh, Lone Wolf and Cub, but mm. in the 1930s gangster era with Tom Hanks as a gangster assassin. It's better than you might think mm. if you haven't seen it. It's beautifully shot by Conrad Hall. Mm. Paul Newman's really good in it. It's okay. Don't watch Revolutionary Road within a decade of marrying. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very well, cynical yeah. film about marriage, apparently. I haven't yeah, seen the, that the, one. The, the, the darkest, most cynical view of marriage as an institution yeah. that you might ever see. He also did another romantic oh. movie called The Way We Go, which I don't think either of us have uh, yeah, seen. Yeah, um, go. And then, uh, of course, he did Skyfall, which a lot of people consider to be one of the better James Bond movies. It's Gorgeously presented, mm. the it's, plot makes no sense even by James Bond mm. standards. I, yeah, it's it's one of the best like paced and photographed of the James Bond movies for whatever that's worth. Every other time I watch Skyfall, mm. I, I switch on it. Like I either like, oh well, you know what, this is so stylish and fun and, mm. and sexy, and this works, and I'm down. And the next time I'm watching, I'm like, I just can't get past how stupid this is. <laughs> like everything, like mm. the guy's plan, like to escape MI6, is the stupidest, most coincidental fucking thing, even by. James Bond movie standards, yeah, but at least it's better than Spectre. Yeah, Spectre is is just bad. It's and, turgid. It's and predictable. Of, it's kind of odd that James Bonds typically, like the more recent James Bonds, have started strong and just petered out immediately. Like Pierce Brosnan, those first two were great. Yeah, Go, I love Goldeneye. That's one. Goldeneye's of, great. It's pro- <laughs> probably my favorite. Tomorrow Never and Dies is a lot of fun. Tomorrow Never Dies it works. And, and then. The world is not enough, and not is not good. And die another day is often considered one of the worst. But it's, I consider die another day one of the worst mm. 
but entertainingly bad because right. it's so weird and crazy. Okay. I, I don't want to get off on James. Bond, no, 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 it's but, fine. Uh, but like, but yeah, like, Sam Mendes uh, yeah. has has been growing as a filmmaker. He's clearly been honing his craft. He's been working with some very talented uh, uh, photographers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Roger Deakins, for specifically example. Roger Deakins. Let's get to 1917. Uh, uh, 1917. He teamed up with Roger Deakins, and he is going. He made a movie. That is actually kind of intimate to him personally because it's based on stories that I think it was his grandfather used to tell him about fighting in the trenches in World War One, yeah. specifically in the year 1917. And this is a film that takes place mostly in real time mm-hmm. uh, and is presented as if it was photographed with a single shot. There are, of course, a few hidden edits, but it looks mm-hmm. like a single shot. Yeah, no, it's, it's there, an impressive like one, technical accomplishment. There, there's one clear edit in the middle, and that's kind of the only one where it's where yeah. there's an edit is supposed to be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because they needed to change like the time, like from day to night, etc. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, so the plot of the movie is there are two soldiers in World War One. They're British soldiers, mm-hmm. and uh, they they're are right, right, right on the German front. Right on the German front. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're actually having a nap. And then someone says, hey, the, the the brass wants you. And they're like, okay. And then we're rolling them all in one shot. And they walk from this beautiful, you know, serene, peaceful pastoral scene into the trenches where everything sucks. <laughs> and then they go and they Colin Firth. Every minor character is played by someone big. Colin Firth mm-hmm. says, hey, listen, bad news. Uh, there's... The, the Germans are retreating, and one of our uh, divisions is chasing after them, and they don't know they're walking into a trap. Mm-hmm. They think they've got the Germans on the run, but actually the Germans have got them right where they want them. We need you to deliver a message to cancel the attack oh, as soon as humanly possible. We so, need you to run right now run, and, and run, make this happen, run or across, thousands yeah. of people will be killed. Run across the front. And here's what I appreciate about 1917. Um with this big gimmick and all this great flashy photography, you know, the sort of one-take gimmick, you think that uh, they'd go the easy way out and just say, this is the heat of battle. And we've seen stuff like that in, like, Saving Private Ryan or Hacksaw Ridge, where we're just sort of on the battlefield while the bombs are dropping. This is actually on the front after it's already been abandoned by the Germans. Well, a lot of it is. Yeah. A lot. Well, there, there's there, action in this. But there, yeah. There's some action, but it's not about the combat. It's actually mm. about the journey across just the, the countryside. Yeah. And how the war effort has essentially just lain waste to the earth. Yeah, and it's also and really so fascinating because of, it's all in one take, and there has right. everything because that, and they're they're walking everywhere. There's like right. one bit where they're able to get on a truck, but that lasts for like five minutes. Right. Like they're walking everywhere, and you get a sense of, and this is the thing I think the movie does the best. Right. A sense of just how kind of profane war is, and how. Like, again, you start in a pastoral scene, you go to the trench, you go to no man's land. These are all within, like, a hundred yards of each yeah, other. And, and, the, and all of these things are just that close. Like, war is kind of arbitrary, if yeah. you think about it. It just sort of divides the land into, you're safe here, you're not safe here, this is where you die. Yeah. Arbitrarily. And and the the dangers of just walking across this, this like, pockmarked landscape that's full of bomb craters that are full of fetid water and dead bodies... Uh, 
even that is a peril. Sure. First of all, the, the soldier, the two soldiers, the main characters are really afraid the whole time because they think soldiers might still be hanging out and they might get shot. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, just wandering among the bodies, it's like a Tales from the Crypt episode. There's it a bit where a guy really like horrible. There's a bit where a guy slips in the mud and he like puts his hand down to to rest himself. But there was a corpse in the mud and, and he puts, puts his hand in an open wound. And he puts his hand and he puts his hand in a rotting corpse. And this was right after he had just grabbed a piece of barbed wire to oh, yeah. himself. So he has an open wound on his hand. That, he's totally that he got hepatitis sho- yeah, now. he shoves like, into that's... a rotting corpse. That guy's gonna lose his hand. That was the scariest part of the movie for me. <laughs> it was right, it's in like the first 20 minutes. That's the scariest part of the movie for me because I'm so OCD. Watching it, the, just the infection grow in his yeah, hand. Yeah, I know. I, w- I kept expecting like the whole movie, yeah. like his hand starts getting numb or something. Yeah. They don't really go there. But uh, what I, I I appreciate though, because as as they continue on, and you know, the soldier, I don't want to reveal what happens no, to it's, the it's soldiers. T- the but, story's a little simple, actually, so we don't want to give away too much. Yeah, it's not like as, a lot of twists and turns. As they go on, and as you know, the time passes, and as they run into some other people, there's a really a uh, really spectacular plane crash sequence. Yeah, it's cool uh, that they did in one shot. Uh, clearly, they you know hit oh. it with digital trickery, but it looks pretty real. It's impressive digital trickery. Uh, no, no denying they, uh, they kind of fall into this weird sort of meditative state. Mm. It's not about sort of the action and the peril. It's just about sort of their fear and how the war has left the entire countryside haunted yeah. with that fear. So they're just, they're afraid all the time. They're afraid all the time. Death is kind of inevitable here, and they're they're. It's not like Saving Private Ryan, where they have a this big grand quest and solving it will solve the day. You you feel that near the end oh, yeah. when he gets really close, when like, the like, ticking you know, clock, we're, there's we're actually literally like a little bit of a, a ticking clock yeah. like that feels really immediate. But for the most part, they're just sort of lost souls, and I really appreciate how kind of purgatorial the entire movie feels. I like that. I like that description. Yeah, um, purgatorial is a good way to put it. There's a scene where. Uh, one of the soldiers sits down and somebody's just singing a song. One of mm-hmm. the, and he doesn't, we don't know who these soldiers are, he who that guy is. He just it. sort of wanders yeah. into this camp and there's a bunch of other British soldiers in the woods and he's singing this really kind of ethereal lullaby. And we realize that, yeah, we're just sort of here to c- contemplate death. We're not here to yeah. accomplish any kind of mission. And, that weird sort of purgatorial futility is something I really appreciate from 1917. It's uh, the flash that I am not impressed by. Oh, I, I'm 100% with you on this. Mm. I think, first off, I want to say Roger Deakins shoots the hell out of this movie. And if well, Roger he shoots Deakins the hell gets, out of every movie. But, but true, yeah. but if he gets another Oscar for this, fine, good, fine. Yeah. It, there's a lot of good cinematography this year. I'd probably say The Lighthouse was even more impressive for mm. me, but seriously, he does an amazing job. Mm. No, no demerits there. But I do actually think that the presentation of the film ultimately hurts it a bit. I think I respect this film more than I like it. Okay. Um, I respect, obviously, the incredible amount of craft and effort that went into it. I expect I respect the intention. But I actually think that by doing the single-take gimmick, mm-hmm. and let's be fair here, it's a gimmick. I'm not using that as a negative or a pejorative. This is the selling point of the movie, mm-hmm. is that we did this all and it looks like one take. Well, which, which, they did that with Birdman, but all I, right. I, yeah. I, well, people have done it before, even before yeah. Birdman. Yeah. Like, it's 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 uncommon, mm-hmm. but it's a thing. There's actually a really good uh, crime movie starring Bruce Campbell called... Um, Oh, what is it? Is it Running Time? What is it? There's a movie where he like he gets out of jail, like he's paroled, and then immediately goes into a bank heist. It's actually oh, really okay. cool. Um, I'll I'll see what I can f- find on that because that's gonna bug me. Mm. Um, but uh, 
the problem with the the way that they present it is that it, I feel like it's supposed to be making it really immediate and personal, and actually I'm really distanced by it because I'm right. constantly distracted by the fact of the camera trickery because mm-hmm. I'm hyper-aware that they are trying to impress me. Yeah. Also, yeah. the other weird thing about this movie is that this is a movie, and I'm seeing this more and more, in random films sometimes, where... It actually plays like video game storytelling mechanics. There's a lot of video games in which there's... The camera lurks behind the main character a lot, and yeah, it has that sort of first-person shooter aesthetic to it. But I'm even going beyond that, Mm. because there's that. Mm. That's very simple. But actually, there's a lot of video games where like the opening level or a level like right in the middle is you're the protagonist, and you're actually just walking to the game part of the game and you're interacting with people who will be important later. And and that that serves as like a tutorial, I suppose. Yes, it's a tutorial. It's also grounding you. It's getting you invested in the world of the game so that when things change, when the aliens attack, when war starts, whatever, Mm -hmm. you feel the shift. It's actually really good storytelling a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And I feel like 1917 is structured that very same way. Also, there are other video game mechanics. Like, there's a bit where they're, like, investigating, like, a farmhouse and one of them fills a canteen with milk mm-hmm. that solves a puzzle later <laughs> and i'm watching this and i'm really distracted by right. it. Yeah, yeah, i'm really like, distracted by just how contrived so you, you know a lot was, of it is you know this is right because your score just went up yeah like mm-hmm. seriously i'm actually just c- distracted by how contrived mm-hmm. it is i i realize that that's something maybe that might be a little unavoidable because they really committed to this and they really thought this is a good idea mm-hmm. and it's a visceral experience it's certainly worth watching i'm not saying it's a bad movie at all mm-hmm. but i just feel like i'm distracted by the artifice and ultimately aside from and you actually put it better than anyone else i've read <laughs> well thank you just the idea of this purgatorial aspect mm-hmm. and the way that the environment has changed and becomes very funereal um I'm actually kind of frustrated by how little this movie really has to say about war, at least in terms of its uh, uh, narrative. It's very simply a man on a mission movie. It, and, well, in, and terms, it's in, terms of, in terms of the story, but you yeah. know what what I'm getting from the gimmick. You know, if I'm if I'm going to spend this entire time just staring at this gorgeous photography, mm-hmm. then as a viewer, I have to start assuming that the photography is the point. Yeah. And what what kind of message am I getting from? that type of photography. And what I'm getting is the soldiers aren't important to this story. Yeah. The soldiers are sort of the things moving around yeah. that we're sort of following. But I have a, a feeling that Sam Mendes was far more interested in the landscape. And, the, and as a result, the, 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 the people the wounded, didn't make as much impact the, wound, the wounded country is kind of the main character here. And I, I think if Sam Mendes had been a little bit colder a director, say like a, a Christopher Nolan or a Kubrick, yeah. that would have read a little bit better. But Perhaps. Sam Mendes is actually a little too warm to make that work. I think he's a very it's emotional a, a little, little too humane yeah. to, to really tell that kind of a story. The um, movie I was thinking of with Bruce Campbell mm-hmm. where it's a, a, like a prison slash bank heist movie told in real time. It's actually called Running Time. Running Time. From okay. 1997. Fun flick. Very, okay. very down and dirty, but very, very fun. <laughs> was, it, was it one take or just real time? One take, or at least it looks like one take. Okay. I, I, it's been a long time since I've seen it. Yeah. The, the cuts yeah. may or may I, not be seamless, but the idea is it's supposed to be one take. Um, I, I, admire, I admire that they went the full nine on the gimmick, but yeah, I think that if they really wanted to nail the point and really kind of show the, the inhumanity of war, yeah. 
lock the camera down for a couple shots. Yeah, it's okay. It, it, the, you don't I, get this contrast between style, really. Everything this idea is that, as yeah. big as each other, either big yeah. in its quietude or yeah. big in its epicness. Yeah. It's difficult to modulate pacing when you're dealing with this one take mm-hmm. because you're on, you only have real time as your pace. And, I'm actually really fascinated by the trailers for this because yeah. the trailers tell the story in some ways better than the movie because yeah. they can edit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the trailers are really selling you and the movie is actually like so it's, it's kind okay of oddly to, framed. It edit in a reaction shot. That's yeah. a great way to, to get a little more uh, emotional punch rather than just zooming in on the character's yeah. face. A punctuation, if you will. Yeah, like, yeah. This, this movie is a big long run on sentence, basically. Yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned the photography of the lighthouse. That's almost all lockdown shots or little kind of like pans back and forth. Uh, that way you can really appreciate sort of the composition of, of the shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one-shot gimmick takes away a lot of of valuable composition uh, language. Yeah, I think so. Uh, if, if you're not composed, like they are clearly composing shots because they had to choreograph this oh, entire yeah. thing. And some of the shots are phenomenal. There's, oh, a, shot, yeah. there's a shot in the trailer, mm. which so it doesn't ruin it, where there's a big, uh, uh, everyone is like leaving the trenches and attacking. But and they're all one, heading from screen right to left. Yeah. But our protagonist is, is running, running right toward the camera. Yeah, yeah. Perpendicular through them. Mm. Boy, is that an amazing shot. Mm-hmm. Just in a, even if it wasn't one take, that's an amazing image. It's an amazing, so beautifully composed. It's an amazing and, image. I think those are all real actors. Like they, they yeah. really went like tried to do it correct. And it's yeah. all of that tactile stuff is really, really accurate. Um I appreciate that it wasn't all shot in darkness. They're not trying to hide anything in the shadows. Mm-hmm. There's a few dark scenes, but for the most part, it's just broad daylight. A lot of it, yeah. So it's nice and clear. Yeah, and when it is in broad daylight, it's like a horror movie. Like, it's actually really creepy. Yeah, yeah um, like weird and hazy. So yeah, I respect the hell out of this movie. I do recommend you go see it. It mm-hmm. left me a little cold. Uh-huh. Um, it's not on my list of the best films of the year. Um, I know a lot of people are saying it's one of the best films of the decade. Mm-hmm. I find it a little... I think the Flash... Mm-hmm. Out, like screams that it's important, but I think that when you actually sit down with it and think about it and let like how cool it is that they did this wear off a little bit, I just feel like the story's kind of thin. But mm. it is definitely worth checking out, and I highly recommend seeing it on the big screen. Yeah, if you can. yeah. yeah. Um, I can guarantee that I am going to mix up 1917 and Dunkirk at some point. <laughs> like, they're just going to cross in my mind, and I'm well, going to think one events from one, even though separate wars, separate filmmakers, yeah. but for some reason, they're, they're like, right next to well, each other. Well, they're both narratively cognitive, ambitious. Cognitive space. Dunkirk is a very... This is a very ambitious film, visually. Mm-hmm. Dunkirk is a very... I, I actually love Christopher Nolan for this. I'm not a huge fan of Dunkirk. I find it another one I find actually really cold. Um, but... From an editing perspective, mm-hmm. Dunkirk is really fascinating yeah. because he is uh, parallel editing sequences that take place over different amounts of time, mm-hmm. but making them sync up anyway. Yeah. And that's Inter- incredibly difficult story, to do yeah. and get a narrative across. He did it mm-hmm. with Inception, but with Inception, he had the excuse of dream timelines. Yeah. And well, and also it uh, works, but here he had to do it for real, and it also works. It's well, a cool he thing. He also did it with Memento. It's a story that's told in reverse chronological order, but he still manages to make it build and climax as if the chronology were forward. Yeah, uh, and simultaneously, that's, like so, yeah. forward chronology and backward chronology comics. Ooh, that's a... Memento's a good film. Memento. It's, another, it's another gimmick film, but it's, that's a gimmick film that I would actually argue it's, and it's also the gimmick a is telling a really compelling story that mm. only could be told with that gimmick. It's also a little butch for my taste. It's oh, you know, ma- male revenge story, but you know... Well, that's Christopher Nolan. He's a butch filmmaker. Yeah, that's it's like sure. the tough... 
cold men, mm. mostly wearing business suits who do mm. crimes. Yeah. That's kind of what he does. Like it, it's really like stirring, and there's dark characters and all this revenge stuff. But my favorite scene was where Carrie Ann Moss spits in the mug. <laughs> oh God! And like, yeah. oh, that's such a good bit because mm. the, the the lead in is so funny in retrospect. Yeah, yeah, so good. Uh, let's move on. Okay. Okay. The other big film opening on Christmas Day is Little Women. Little Women is one of many adaptations of Louisa May Alcott's classic novel from the 19th century. It's at least the fourth like big budget Hollywood production of Little Women. Yeah, there was one in the 1930s starring yeah. Catherine Hepburn. There was one in the I think late 1940s starring Elizabeth Taylor. There was one in the 90s, which is a lot of people's favorite movie, uh, starring Winona Ryder. Mm-hmm. I love it too. Uh, that's the version I grew up with the most. Okay. Uh, and now there is a new one starring Saoirse Ronan, Emma Watson, Timothy Chalamet, Florence Pugh, Laura Dern. One hell of a cast. And Meryl Streep. And, like, and, and the one that dies. And the, uh, <laughs> well, fine. Uh, and this one is written and directed by Greta Gerwig. This is her second feature film that she's directed by herself. She co-directed something before. Um, after Lady Bird, which, of mm. course, was an enormous critical success. Very good uh, film, too. Made her one of the very few women ever nominated for Best Director at the Academy Awards. Still kind of surprised she lost, honestly. <laughs> but, um, and um, Little Women is one of my favorite things, just in general. The book mm-hmm. meant a lot to me growing up. Uh, the movies, all three of those versions, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to get into the new Little Women yet. Those three versions, the Catherine Hepburn version, the mm-hmm. Elizabeth Taylor version, the Winona Ryder version... All of them are classics. They're great adaptations. <laughs> okay. They do different things different ways. I think some are better than others, or hmm. some handle one aspect of the story better than the others, and the others compensate. Yeah. Um, um, and I've, Greta Gerwig is reinterpreting it for a new generation, and I think she has done an incredible job. <laughs> um, I have not read Little Women. Okay, it's I'm I'm I've read a lot of books. I haven't read that one. You've seen at least one of the adaptations. And I've, seen, I know I've seen the one from the 1933, 35, around there, mid 30s. The Catherine Hepburn version. Yeah, the Catherine. I've seen the Catherine Hepburn version. I haven't seen the other two. Which is quite faithful. Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a very faithful mm. adaptation. They're they're um, all pretty faithful. There's not the the book just kind of works. It deals with the March family. Uh, it's four sisters who are all very close friends, and they all have. Uh, varied interests, and they have personalities that kind of conflict, conflict, but they're uh, very good friends at the end of the day. Yeah, they love each other very, very yeah. much. Uh, they live with their just their mother, who is in this version played by Laura Dern. Mm-hmm. Uh, their father is a soldier in World War or Civil War. World War Civil War. Yeah, Civil War One. He's off, so uh, all the women are yeah. by themselves trying to make ends and meet. And they make are uh, on constantly on the brink of poverty. And yet, somehow, they manage to not just make ends meet, but to be incredibly generous and warm and open and very uh, very good citizens, is mm-hmm. the best way to put it. Without being inter- preachy about it. They interact with their yeah. community in a very pure sort of way. And uh, it, it is about that sort of warmth and openness and community, uh, the previous version and this version, mm-hmm. in, in a way that... Is unbelievably refreshing. It's so beautiful. There's the the, there's, the kind oh. of conflicts that come up in this movie are very personal conflicts, uh-huh. and they're not about how these people are dissatisfied with the world. Joe, notwithstanding, D- Joe uh, has some issues, yeah. but like, but no, seriously, like, there's actually the conflict in the story of Little Women. Mm. Only some of it is external. Mm. Most of it involves just 
their humanity and how they interact with one another mm-hmm. and how they view the world differently and how they want different things for themselves and for each other mm-hmm. and how they're going to overcome that with love and humility and grace. And that sounds like it should be boring. I admit that that sounds like that should be boring. It is captivating because the characters are so distinctly realized and they bounce off each other so well. And I don't know how the fuck (laughs) four separate major Hollywood productions of this movie have nailed it. Well, I, I guess we have to go back to Louise May Alcott then, don't right? Because uh, it's it's, per- it's a great work. It's a great yeah. fucking book. I love this book. There's uh, and this goes back to something that I like to call the benevolent helper subgenre of films, mm-hmm. where the characters we're introduced to are more or less complete when we meet them. Yeah, uh, they go through sort of dramas, but it's not necessarily their job to change. It's their job to adapt to a world that they're in. That's a really great way of describing Little Women. And I think Little Women is about these four very strong, complex, interesting people, because it's the four sisters are the main characters, Mm -hmm. uh, who are... Laura Dern has some great scenes in this, though. Laura Dern, too. I think she's better in this than she is in Marriage Story. Everyone's talking Mm -hmm. about she's going to get an Oscar nomination for Marriage Story. We should get it for this. No, she she has a... Such a showier role in Marriage Story, but this is so much richer. Yeah, I was about to say, that's what it has going for. She's got those cool speeches where she gets to sound like someone wrote dialogue for her. Yeah. Yeah, like she's so much better than Little Women. Um, she's great in Little Mary's story too. It's fine, but Little Women's so fucking good. Yeah, but yeah, the, these these women and you know the, things come up between them, and it is about the drama comes from not are they going to survive, but are they going to be friends again after this? Mm-hmm. And that is infinitely more harrowing, I think, than some kind of manufactured outside drama. Now yeah. there is some manufactured outside drama, and indeed Greta Gerwig. Uh, is very canny about telling the story completely out of order. Yeah. So we can kind of stress on how badly things are going to go. Yeah. The, and how much we need to cherish things when they're going well. Okay, so the story of Little Women mm. actually was released in two different parts. Mm. Uh, there was a story of the Little Women when they were young, and then there's a story of the Little Women when they're a bit older, and uh, one of them has, they've all grown up and moved out of the house. Yeah. Except for Beth, but whatever. Uh Normally, most movie adaptations just do this chronologically. Mm. They, there's a bit of a break, and then we catch mm. up to everybody a year or two later. Mm. Uh, Greta Gerwig starts later. Uh, Joe, played by Saoirse Ronan, really excellently by Saoirse Ronan, uh, is the character who is based on Louisa May Alcott. Mm-hmm. She's an author. Who kind of is Louisa May Alcott in the movie. And in Greta- fact, I, I thought yeah. that... Uh, Saoirse Ronan was playing two roles for a second. I think in some respects she is. Mm. Greta Gerwig, cl- like it, it's very clear in most adaptations of Little Women that by the end of the m- book or movie mm. uh, that Joe has written Little Women mm. and that Joe is at least functionally Louis- Louisa May Alcott. Um, Greta Gerwig blurs that line in a really brilliant way. Mm. And I don't want to ruin how she like fiddles with the ending, but the ending is... Perfect. <laughs> it's my favorite version of the ending. I think it's actually really mm. you get everything you want. You get all but of the it, wonderful it has, melodrama, but it's also really smart. It, it also and clever has this and really, feminist you know, really kind of yeah, like meta narrative going on at the so same clever. time. And yeah, if you yeah. know the actual story, the publication of Little Women, she plays it totally fair, and it's so great. Mm. But by starting the story with them as adults, again, you do see a little bit more where they're going to be, mm-hmm. how some of them are going to be in some more dire straits. But the other thing that this does is. I don't want to say it fixes a character because she was never broken, uh-huh. but I think it fixes the way the character is presented. Okay. Uh, the youngest March sister, Amy, 
Mm-hmm. Um, who in the a lot of people remember the '90s version? She's played by Kirsten Dunst and then Samantha Mathis. Mm-hmm. Um, here she's played in both versions, which mm-hmm. usually they recast. Uh, she's played in both versions by Florence Pugh. She plays Florence. Mm-hmm. She plays Amy as a a more mature young girl, mm-hmm. uh, and then she plays well, Amy as a young adult. Because Florence Pugh simultaneously looks younger and older than she is. Right. So she she, she could play a thirty five year old if you know with like a little bit of makeup, mm-hmm. uh, or she could play a sixteen year old with a little bit of makeup. Yeah, they they aged She's, up Amy uh, a little bit, and I think that's wise because Florence Pugh is only twenty three. By the way, oh I know, <laughs> she, Florence she, Pugh she's very young. Between fighting with my family, uh, Midsommar, Midsommar, yeah, and Little Women, Florence Pugh is having a year uh-huh. the way very few actors have ever had a year. Every mm. single one of those performances, I would argue, is Oscar worthy. They're mm-hmm. all re- and they're different. Yeah, they're yeah. very different. And her version of Amy is the ultimate Amy. <laughs> I mean this, and I mean this in the best. First off, mm. she's insanely fucking funny. Oh yeah, she's really, 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 really funny. She's mm. got this ego that's so perfectly comedically timed, but it's really genuine. And mm-hmm. there's a bit where she's talking about how, like, oh, yes, you you took my you took my sister home from the dance because she sprained her ankle. That never would have happened to me. I have wonderful dainty ankles and, mm-hmm. and, I'm, and I'm wonderful. But anyway, I'm sad. <laughs> so good. Later in the movie, she's making a cast of her ankles. Oh, God. Remember that? She, I forgot about she's got that. a bucket of plaster of Paris in her foot, is, and, and then it hardens around her foot, and she freaks out. Her vanity is so damn funny it's, in this. That's just a little incidental moment, but, by the way. But the thing with Little Women is mm. a lot of it centers around a relationship uh, between Joe, here played by Saoirse Ronan, mm. and uh, their next-door neighbor, Lori, uh, played in the 90s version by Christian Bale. Here he's played by Timothy Chalamet. Really well by Timothy Look, Chalamet. La- la- lateral move, I think. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. But that's fine. That's, that's mm. really good. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna spoil a little bit of this because the movie the new movie makes this pretty clear and I think a lot of people have read it anyway. All right, because um, I, I, it's a hundred fifty year old book by this point. I think you can't really know. spoil Little Women. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, after it's weird when you're watching like the '90s version of Little Women because it looks so much like Christian Bale and Winona Ryder are going to end up together, mm-hmm. and then they don't. And Christian Bale actually ends up with Amy. Mm-hmm. The problem with most versions of Little Women is that because we meet Amy as a very young girl and she's played by a, a child actor mm-hmm. and Lori is already a teenager, when they end up together, it's creepy. <laughs> it's genuine. Mm. I, I, I know there's a lot going on and times have changed, blah, 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 blah. Mm. It's creepy. The 1930s version took the curse off of that a little bit by having their entire like courtship process ha- take place off screen. Mm. But in the 90s version, it seems like Laurie is settling for Amy and it's kind of fucked up. Mm. When you frame the story with Amy and Laurie interacting as adults first and then go back, Mm -hmm. you see actually how that was kind of organic. And the fact that Florence Pugh is playing the character both times makes it a lot Mm. less creepy and makes it actually seem like this was the right ending. Yeah. It's such a brilliant adaptational move. <laughs> she fixed maybe my favorite book, and it didn't need fixing. It was good. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't know how the fuck she did mm. this and made this incredibly. It feels very contemporary while also feeling very much of the past. It's, it's, it's very a, relevant. It's it, so good. It, it has a really kind of rich production design as well. I mean, as, as films of this ilk typically do, but Greta Gerwig has a really good eye for detail. She does. Um, in terms of just sort of the way the interiors of the rooms look. These mm-hmm. are gigantic homes, but she's able to communicate a lot through subtle lighting cues. There was a dream sequence, which turns out was a flashback. 
So there was a scene where we got to see uh, Mr. March come home. Oh, and yeah, then, yeah. And then she woke up and he wasn't there anymore. And I thought that that was a dream and that he didn't come home. Ah, and then I, I saw him so. as a priest later on. It's like, oh, she imagined the priest as her father. And oh, no, wait, that was her father. Okay, and we're... Yeah. The chronology makes sense. Like, it took me a while to kind of catch yeah. up. She's too clever for me, is my <laughs> point. And that's not an insult. No. That, that's a the, that's a great compliment. Oh Greta, Greta Gerwig really out-clevered me, and I appreciate every time she did. Yeah. But yeah, the way she's able to subtly tell the difference between the time frames, the way she's able to convey wealth... Yeah. As something very incidental yet very important. Oh, I love through little things like lighting and production design. I actually really love. She gives one of the things Greta Gerwig does mm. that I I think even the other classic productions of this don't do. Mm. She gives equal credit and love to all of the March sisters. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. So Emma Watson plays the older sister in this. Mm. Uh, Meg. Meg is seen as kind of a boring character in a lot of adaptations. Mm. It's because she's the one who, like, Joe wants to be a writer. She wants to be a, 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 a trailblazer. And Beth wants to be a great artist. And, uh, not sorry, Meg, uh, Amy wants to be a great artist. And Beth wants to be this saintly figure. And Meg wants to get married and have kids. Mm. Greta Gerwig gets that. Mm. She doesn't judge her for that. She actually has a great scene where Joe is trying to tell her, like, listen, this is run away. Mm. You'll be tired of marriage after a while. And, she, and Meg is a great bit where she actually she gives her the time and says, just because I want something different from you doesn't mean that it's not equally valid. Mm. And we get to see more in this version than any other version I've ever seen her marriage after the fact and how it's difficult. She made a choice. She married a mm. poor guy. Mm. And it's actually really hard. But it still works, and it's still valuable, and it, oh, it's good. <laughs> I am it so is, deeply in love with this movie. <laughs> I am. I have been high it's, on this movie. It's, it's been a month yeah. since it came out, since it aired or screened. Aired. Right, it screened for critics like a month ago for like yeah. awards consideration, which it's not getting. Mm. It's not. I don't understand this it's at just, all. Yeah, it's it, a brilliant motion picture. It's really, 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 really wonderful. I, I, I have no complaints about this movie. It, I, it's, it's I just, also think it's, it's just it's, about it's perfect. It's sweet and warm and smart and intellectual and emotional just across the board. Yeah. I think... May here's the only thing I could say against it, and this sure. isn't a complaint of mine. No, that's fair. This just might be why uh, a lot of critics or awards bodies aren't giving it traction. Is it's very modest. Uh, it doesn't. It's little women. It's little women. And that's what it, it does. It doesn't have those big uh, climactic moments. It, like we were talking about, Laura Dern's performance is yeah. really showy in Marriage Story, and she gets the speeches that sound very dialogue heavy. These types of performances, where you just strongly convey a character throughout, and you don't get a big speech, yeah. uh, aren't typically recognized and that I, which is why I thought I, at the I, very I, which least is weird Florence because, Pugh would be singled out because, because she's such Florence a scene Pugh, stealer in this she is a scene stealer and she does have a few moments and she does go through the biggest changes yeah uh, Joe has one wonderful speech oh, near so the end bad, yeah. where, where she talks about sort of her, her the state of her relationship. Yeah, she made a lot of choices um, and I, she's I don't, dealing with the negative ramifications I'm not going to well. quote the speech because you need to hear it. It's um, so good. But the notion of women living isn't the type of thing that is getting awarded. And it's certainly not getting awarded this year. And mm -hmm. this is just yet another excellent film by an excellent filmmaker, mm -hmm. a woman, mm -hmm. that is being completely ignored. I know. There's a dozen great films d directed by women from this year. Oh, at least. At, at, gr like great, like top ten material type mm -hmm. films that are just not being 
mentioned in the conversation at all. And I'm yeah. not talking about little indies that a lot of people didn't see, like Fast Color, which is a great film, by the way. Sure. Um, but stuff like Celine Shiama's Portrait of a Woman on Fire, or yeah. Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Yeah, oh God, it's getting uh, mostly overlooked completely. Yeah, um, it wasn't France's like, big nomination. Yeah, Joanna Hogg's The Souvenir isn't just a legit Still excellent movie. Yeah, there's, there's a few that are getting a lot of attention. The Farewell is getting a lot of attention. As oh, there motion, you go. I missed that when Lula it came Wayne's out. The it's, Farewell is getting a, a lot of attention. That's a brilliant motion picture. Yeah. I love that. That's also going to end up on my top ten. Okay. But I'm going to say this right now. Normally I would save this because we're about to do, like... In the next episode or two, I don't know if we're going to do worst or, or mm. best first, but uh, I would always save like where something is going to land on my best pictures of the mm. year list. But I want to tell you something right now because I really think it, it it's a selling point. I really mm. want if anyone is listening to this podcast mm. who puts any stock in what are in our opinions, uh-huh. they're not listening to it like academically. Little Women is my pick for the best movie of the year. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I think it is flawless. I, I, I love. I'm, how, you know love, how not, daring one of those movies is. I'm not going to argue that. Yeah. I am seriously considering, even though uh, I really love films like Midsommar and The Lighthouse, yeah. I'm considering making my top ten just films directed by women this year. It would be easy just to, to make do. a bit of a point, um, yeah. because there are so many great ones. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, honestly, I, so, I, my short list... Mm-hmm. A lot of it's like I wasn't even trying. Like yeah. a lot of them just ended up on there my, anyway. My 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 favorite film, like the one I just felt most exhilarated while watching, was The Lighthouse, which probably says a lot about my character. It really does. But, uh, <laughs> well, listen, we'll talk about that in more detail, yeah, we'll and you can make that, those yeah. decisions later. Yeah, um, we got to move on. But yeah, uh, uh, if you're if you're don't want to hear anything about Star Wars, if you didn't get a chance to see it this weekend, we're gonna run through just real fast on a critically acclaimed scale mm-hmm. the movies we just reviewed. Yeah. Uh, and again, we're going to review Star Wars mostly spoiler free. We got to talk a little bit about what happens. And then we're going to talk about some spoilers, and we'll give you a big warning yeah. uh, before that happens. So, on the scale of critically acclaimed, uh, C minus to C plus, where C is about an average, mm-hmm. C minus is below average or bad mm-hmm. or awful in some mm-hmm. cases, uh, and C plus is above average or great or classic material. Mm-hmm. Uh, Little Women is my highest possible C plus. Okay. I, I just love, it's, love, it's love this movie. Definitely a C plus. It's very. I'm so glad you very, saw it before we very, did this very, podcast. Very, very good. I uh, was very eager to try I, to get you to see. this I was re- also really trying to squeeze in Invisible Life, the, know, the can the can winning film. A fr- it's a Portuguese film and or it's a Brazilian film in Portuguese, and. I just didn't have the time. Now, I, we, I just didn't have the time. We, just, there if, weren't enough hours in the if day. If you weren't going out of town, maybe we could have found the time and, yeah. and, and made that work. But we have to record. We have to record. Yeah. And there's always something we miss. And we always, someone always says, hey, did you see this? We wanted to. We, yeah. We're so, trying to cram as much as we can. I've heard Les, Les Miserables. The new Les Miserables is good. I've yeah. heard Invisible Life is good. There's just a, a bunch that I need to catch okay. up on. Uh, but uh, 1917, where'd you land? Uh, ultimately, I think a C plus. Yeah. Uh, I think it's too capable, interesting, and uh, engrossing to really ignore. Even though I think it's maybe not as great as uh, some of the awards bodies would have you think it is. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm actually gonna give it a C, a okay. high C. Um, specifically because you gave it a C plus. I mean, okay. If you give it a C, I would have given it a C plus just to stress kind that it is it, out, it yeah. is a visceral experience. It is certainly I think it is certainly exciting, but I was surprised by how little impact it made on me after I watched it. Okay, yeah. Um, so I I enjoyed watching it very very much. I think it's a good man on a mission movie. But as the weeks went by, so it was like two mm. and a half weeks ago. Well, I don't. I, don't, I only think about it because people keep mentioning that it's coming out. Like yeah, I, it, it's not, gone from my memory. I'm not thinking of the characters, and I'm not thinking of the mission. I'm, think, I'm thinking of the haunted battlefields. I'm thinking of the atmosphere, and I think that's going to stay with me. So yeah. maybe so. Um, what about? Uh, uh, um, oh, that was just cats. Yeah, and we also did cats. Cats is a D. Uh, <laughs> our first D. Our first D. <laughs> 
You know what? Cats is an abomination that you need to rush out and see immediately. I'm actually going to give you this. We cannot do this often. (laughs) This is a rare thing. I'm going to give... We are giving Cats our very first D rating. It's a D. Because it is absolutely, unbelievably weird and terrible, and you need to go see it. Yeah, yeah. That's... We, we it's a seriously, spe- special recommendation for how awful we, it is. We can do, like... I can't even do that stuff with, like, something like Serenity, which is really bonkers. Oh, no! You don't need to see Serenity. You really don't. Re- like, reading about Serenity is enough. Cats kind of needs to be witnessed. Yeah. That just in its big, clunky, disgusting, awful glory. I, I love you. And again, uh, we can do this like a couple of times a decade. Yeah. We yeah. really have to just reserve this like, for very special occasions. Like it's 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 as glitzy as Xanadu, but in like in quality and visuals, it's like how the Grinch stole Christmas. It's so ugly it's and murky. gaudy and yeah. awful. <laughs> and I kind of love how bad it is, but I don't mm. really. It's so I, weird. I never want to watch it again, but if... <laughs> If I'm with a bunch of like drunk friends at a party, it's like yeah. Let's, I, let's I think I think it's, I think it's show people clips. I would show okay. people clips. I would show people like here's here's a couple of numbers. Mm. And to her credit, Jennifer Hudson fucking rocks this joint. So let's listen to her version of memory. Mm. Um, even, even though it's hard to look at her because it's her face on this weird miniature. I cat said listen. <laughs> yeah, Very my, specifically. My soundtrack record. Like no one, no one looks good in cats. Yeah. They just even look Francesca catty. Hayward, who's a real dancer. Like, yeah. Mm. No one, no one's done done any favors by how cats looks. Now, now that I know who Francesca Hayward is, the next time she, if I'm in England and she's dancing and mm. I can afford tickets, I'll watch her dance in person. Apparently she's in like they I don't know if it's a filmed ballet or if it's an upcoming adaptation or whatever um, she, she has one other IMDB credit and it's in Romeo and Juliet from like this year so yeah. I don't know if that was like a fathom event or something oh, so, but yeah. if whatever that is I'm fascinated I'd love to see it all right um, okay so Star Wars uh, there's a new Star Wars film it's the 15th um, uh, it is the 15th film do not tell us that the Ewok movies don't count they count. They were released theatrically Do overseas. Not, well, I don't care if they were released theatrically or not. They are feature films. The holiday special is a feature film. It has it's, a narrative. It counts. It's in canon. It is technically in canon. Mm. Uh, and uh, and the Clone Wars animated movie also counts. Mm. Other than that, you know all the others. There's the prequel trilogy, the original trilogy, the current trilogy, and the handful of weird interquels like Solo and Rogue One. Can we just call it a not nonology at this point? I think, I think it is considered a nonology now. Nonology. Now. Nonology is a nine-chapter thing. But then Rogue One really is kind of in the story. Yeah, that's true. So I don't know what it is. It's a De- decology. De- decology. Whatever it is. Um, <laughs> Star Wars is... Listen, you don't need us to introduce Star Wars to you. Star Wars is a cultural institution yeah. at this so point. We, yeah, we don't need to walk through all of the films up to this point. Mm-hmm. What we can say, uh, I, I think, here's the narrative I want to want to form around Rise of the Skywalker. Okay, uh, I'm curious. And again, rise. no spoilers it's, um, yet. It's from, from, from the Disney purchase on. Uh, Disney bought Star Wars. Uh, they famously said, we're going to do a Star Wars film a year. And they, in, I think it was 2015, 2015, they released the Star Wars The Force Awakens, which was chapter seven in the saga. Yeah. Uh, and it was the Tiny Toon Adventures version of the first <laughs> Star Wars in that every character had a direct, quote, junior version of themselves in this new version. And but they could also interact with the old version, just like Tiny Toon Adventures. <laughs> Buster, Bu- Buster and Babs Bunny. Uh, it was Finn, and Finn, Finn and Ray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're yeah. not wrong. Yeah, I, just, I, I go, go go through the whole cast. They all have analogs. Uh, and beat for beat, it was also very similar to Star Wars. Now, I think because this was sort of a new, big, highly publicized kind of restart of Star Wars mm-hmm. after a few years of no Star Wars, uh, that is theatrical films. 
they needed to prove that they could do a Star Wars. So they said, yeah. we're going to just do to something. They needed to feel like Star Wars. They needed to feel like Star Wars. Yeah. We're going to lean really heavily on nostalgia. We're going to introduce new characters, but it's going to feel a lot like the old one. It's going to be the same story as the old one. A lot of people objected to the sameness of it, but I think... Mm. I did at the time, but it yeah. actually grew on me, because yeah, what, I, else, I what I'll say has, about J.J. Abrams for yeah. a Star Wars movie is, first off, he cast it great. He cast it great, and they, you had all an excellent... All the new characters are fun. And you have an excellent point. Uh, you had to point this out to me about mm. fascism. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. So like, so initially when I watched the movie, mm. um, I liked it fine. I mm. actually had a good time with it. Um, but my two biggest complaints were it's a little samey, Death Star again, mm. yada yada yada. But the thing that kind of bugged me in 2015 was, um, so wait a minute, they defeated fascism like 30 years ago, and now fascists are back, and we've learned like, like, nothing. Like really fast. Like yeah. authoritarianism just suddenly sprung up, and a whole bunch of stupid ass teenagers mm. just ignored everything that their forebears fought and died for, mm. and they just brought back authoritarianism like assholes, mm-hmm. like fetishy weird assholes. I don't buy it. Mm. 2016 rolls around. I apologize, JJ. You were right. <laughs> the Force Awakens when we is saw not this, just like rise of the extreme right in America. All of a sudden, it seemed really prescient. Look, they were always space Nazis. It was always a thin allegory for World War II. But what I think the Force Awakens did, perhaps even slightly by accident, was I think they keyed into the cyclical nature of this kind of conflict and how we mm. keep yeah. walking back into it and how is, it, taking a break uh-huh. from something terrible happening just leads people to forget why it was terrible yeah. in the first place and to think they're an exception and yeah. it's okay when they do it. And, and I'm not talking about cyclical storytelling or anything no. to do with Joseph Campbell, just this kind of, yeah, the nature that war will start again. Which History makes, repeats itself, sadly, all the uh, time. Which, you know, when when uh, the company announces we're going to give you Star Wars films ad infinitum, all I can think is, all I can feel is dismay because it just means the war will never and yeah, well, again, there's never star piece. So I, was, the, I was talking to Michelle about this, yeah. and she's a she's a writer. She's an author. She mm-hmm. writes books and short stories and things. Whereas I write criticism, different kind of writing. And she made a great point about stories and why they kind of need to end because mm-hmm. life ends. Yeah, <laughs> finality is built into our DNA, and having things continue perpetually, it's kind of unnatural in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. and it robs our stories mm-hmm. of their opportunity to have a point. Because yeah. if the point can constantly be rewritten, it kind of no longer has one, does yeah, it? Yeah, and, and if, if your argument is going to be, well, but life in general continues, well, yeah. that takes the sting off of mortality and makes life kind of meaningless, and it makes the story kind of meaningless. Yeah, there's uh, an argument the other way. I hear I it, but, this, so, but the, the, I feel this is increasingly yeah. relevant with something like yeah. Star Wars. But, but uh, anyway, the, the next film to be released was Rogue One. It's one of my least favorite Star Wars movies because that was their first opportunity to show, oh, we're going to expand the Star Wars universe. We're going to see what is in this universe. It's always been very tantalizing, Star yeah. Wars, with all these curious aliens and weird locales, and there's so many like worlds and strange cultures to explore. What are we going to do? And what are they going to do? They're going to focus in on a little tiny detail of the first movie. It's all going to surround the exact same events. We're just sort of circle orbiting the yeah. drain, as it were. And no, I don't. Like I, the, I felt like kind of. I, I felt angry watching that movie. No, and, Rogue uh, One. Rogue One is all about the stealing of the Death Star plans, which mm. were not, which was something that was so unimportant. The movies never mentioned it until now. Mm. And the problem with that movie, there's two problems with that movie. I have one is it's just bad, kind of grim bad and characterization. Well, it's one, it's yeah. well, it's it's bad characterization because they don't have time for anyone to grow because no one can survive that story. Mm-hmm. That's written into the DNA of the story. 
that's the end of that because mm. otherwise those characters would have been around <laughs> so it was all an exercise in futility and I think there's a bit of the film where they try to play it up that way like of course it was mm. it's sad and it's tragic but ultimately it seems like they're building up something and trying to get a lot of credit for something that could only ever have ended one way yeah, yeah. and as a result I find it kind of a, a kind of like 1917 where it's like I see what you're doing, but it's a little superficial on some yeah, levels. It's super superficial. Uh. Uh, then they asked uh, Ryan Johnson, who had previously done films like Looper and The Brothers Bloom, a bit of a quirky filmmaker, to make mm. a Star Wars film. Odd choice. I'm glad they asked him because he looked at Star Wars, and I'm guessing he's not a huge like Star Wars fan. Oh, he is. He is. Yeah. Okay, well, he's he, a fan. Here's the thing with Ryan he Johnson. Wise, he he's was a wise fan. Enough. Okay. He works in a lot of different genres, mm. but he's always committed to tweaking that genre when he plays with it. Yeah, yeah. He knows it, he understands it, he loves it, but he doesn't just want to do it the same kind of way. Straight. He wants to he wants to to play. He mm. wants to contribute. Although I, I, I think uh I think Knives Out is just a pretty good straight up who done it. But I think there, I think there's a really big yeah. twist in that movie that changes the way that that works a, as a, a little mystery. Bit, a little I think he, bit, he, he, played. he played. Um but yeah, this time around he was the first filmmaker in this entire series after several decades of frothing heightened conversations in the real world about Star Wars mm -hmm. and how, especially in recent years, ever since Clerks, really, uh, the conversation about Star Wars has become increasingly nitpicky, yep. uh, increasingly detail-oriented, increasingly obsessive. Mm -hmm. Taking and, it way too seriously in some cases. constant. It's We never put it down. Everybody says, oh, May the 4th, that's when we celebrate Star Wars stuff. Name a single day where you don't mention Star Wars. It's I, obnoxious I, I now. defy you. Uh-huh. Count how many Star Wars podcasts there are. Yeah, they're countless. Yeah. Star they're Wars podcasts, Star Wars YouTube series, yeah. websites dedicated exclusively to Star Wars. And I'm not decrying anyone's fandom. If you love Star Wars, by all means, go ahead and celebrate it. But, but it's, let's it's not pretend that it's some obscure thing yeah, now. It is an institution. It's, it's a big institution. People are really devoted to this thing. The constant chattering about it has caused the the attitudes towards Star Wars to change a lot and yep. it's really started to highlight for people who are constantly hearing this noise critics hmm. to or fans or, or, movies, or some fans movie fans. To, movie fans as well to really understand that Star Wars is really low on ideas uh, Rogue One cemented that, especially in uh, movies. Yeah. For, I know the comics and everything; they well, have a lot comics, more freedom. Expanded universe, I'm sure. But they have a lot uh, more freedom. in terms of like the, the feature films and what we've been talking about, the stories have stayed very, very insular. That everyone calls this an epic, but it, it's becoming less and less epic the more the further forward we go, because mm. we're dealing with the same like dozen characters every time. Yeah, and everything's and, kind of like and they all and, and it all goes like around some very specific events. It feels like you know the the fixed points in time from Doctor Who. Those things yeah. can't be. Touched. It, it, only the original Star Wars trilogy, mm -hmm. I feel, felt it completely extemporaneous. And Except even, for the third one. Well, I was about to get to yeah. that. And even the third one, they decided to wrap it up by going full Death Star again. Mm -hmm. And the, the prequel trilogy um, has a lot of... Listen, I don't think they're good movies. I think Sith is better than the other two. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think they work narratively at all. But there's a lot of interesting mm -hmm. ideas in them. But they're also all foregone conclusions. We yeah. know exactly where it's got to go. And by making the new trilogy cyclical, it also led it to feel a little samey, let's be fair, yeah. with The Force Awakens. So when Ryan Johnson came around for The Last Jedi and actually took it in new directions while simultaneously following the structure of The Empire Strikes Back so that it does indeed feel like a yeah. Star Wars movie, 
that was so welcome. It was it was welcome. There were messages in it about how all of this is futile. Mm-hmm. That uh, I think the one line of dialogue we're going to take away from all of these new movies is "Let the past die." Kill it if you have. Kill to. it if you have to. Which is not something I think fans want to hear because they want to c- perpetuate. They want to yeah. continue to be fans. Having the thing you love say, "Stop being a fan of me." I think that's incredibly daring, but I'm, I think a lot of fans reacted of, very badly to that. I'm reminded of Sir Alec Guinness. There's mm. a story uh, told many, many times mm. of uh, when Sir Alec Guinness, who of course played Obi-Wan Kenobi in the original uh, films, mm. uh, some people ran up to him with their small child and said, our, our son has seen Star Wars a hundred times. Mm. And Sir Alec Guinness said, really? And they looked at that kid and he said, never see it again. <laughs> you, you've, you've seen, seen it, it enough. enough. Now, yeah. <laughs> Move on. <laughs> like... Because, and that's the thing, like, Star Wars was so, and it was baked into the premise, like, The Force Awakens was about people who were living in the past. Kylo Mm. Ren was living in the past as the villain. Um, And in the second one, he said, you know what, we we just gotta put an end to all of this. We have to forge a new path, we have to do something new Mm. and that is entirely our own, and The Last Jedi is just as transformative, or at least it should be, as the Empire Strikes Back was. Yeah. That really changed the direction of the franchise yeah. in a lot of ways. The characters, the plot, the I, themes. I, yeah, I really appreciated it. It's, it's way too long. There's too much going on in that movie. It's I not have, perfect. I have but, no picks in that movie. I yeah. do think there are things that are that are overblown, plot yeah. points. I think the whole thing about how you need... To, I, I actually don't mind Canto Bite as a sequence because I really like seeing how the economy works in this yeah, universe. I think they're it's actually, very they're actually explaining a lot about Star Wars in that the, movie. The thing I can't stand about that sequence is when Maz Kanata says, oh, you need to... What, I forget, something like Code Splicer or something. Mm. You, there's only one person besides me who can crack the code on the First okay. Order battleship. And, 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 I, and I'm busy. So yeah. and, and I'm busy. So you got to go to Canto mm. Bite to get him. And they don't get him. They get a guy who happened to be in jail with them who just happened to be able to do the same mm. thing. What? Well, but he, There's only one other guy in the universe who could do this, and you happen to end up in a jail cell with a guy who says, I can do it. Oh. What? Well, <laughs> that what, I, what I appreciate about that whole sequence, I think that sloppiness was by design. You think? Because the whole point is they're going, to this bi- they're going on this big quest, and we have to get this guy. He can break a code, and we can break in, and we can do a quest. It feels like a fetch quest sort of thing. Oh, it totally is. Uh, but it goes nowhere by design. It actually is blocked off, because all of that fetch quest stuff we realize in the broader scheme of Star Wars uh-huh. is just prolonging the inevitable, which is the Empire is bigger than us. We're going to die. We just need to survive as best we can. True. And, and true. Indeed, I guess that's true. I, I find it... Uh, the, the movie ends... too big. The, that's my The movie ends with essentially the rebellion dis- defeated. Yeah. There's like 12 of them left at the end of that movie. Uh-huh. But hope and survives. Hope, hope survives. You know, fascism has taken over. There's a new generation of fascists. He's devoted himself to fascism, but there's still a, like a little glimmer of hope at the uh, corner of every galaxy. Yeah, and that's the end of your saga. That's where Star Wars needs to stop. That would have. Uh, I think you could have continued, but you can't continue like right after. Yeah, but the the. the this idea that these things need to come in threes, though, is now baked into the, the culture, mm-hmm. and so now we have... Star Wars Episode uh, Nine. Star Wars Episode Nine. It's, um, uh, they got J.J. Abrams back. There was this idea that so many people were unhappy with a lot of the messages of The Last Jedi. That Which I'm not made, even convinced is true. The movie I mean, it was, did spectacularly it was, well. It, it, made, it made a heck of a lot of money. Yeah. It was critically acclaimed, and... People do love it. It, a, it a lot was of successful. Pe- a lot of people love it, but you know, you go on Twitter, you'll find a lot of people yeah. who really hate it and call it the worst thing ever, and how dare you, and they yeah. ruin Star Wars, and Ryan Johnson boo. Uh, I, I just hate the, the flavor of the discourse now. Uh, I know. T- t- fans have too much power, and here's what fans want. They want something safe. Here's what fans are demanding. Do, do something a lot more like Star Wars. Do something more like The Force Awakens. They got the same director back, J.J. Mm-hmm. Abrams, who is... Uh, 
very good visually. I don't think he's necessarily that skilled a storyteller per se. Well, but, I, have, uh, I have a theory about that. Yeah, but uh, they they decided to make good on a lot of the promises that J.J. Abrams set up in the first one. He set up some mysteries that in The Last Jedi they said, these aren't really mysteries. Those don't matter. I, I actually am not yeah. convinced he set up any mysteries at all. He, he didn't. Those were kind I, of things that were it manufactured. Really, it really bothered me the whole thing about, oh, who raised parents? Who cares? It doesn't it matter. Was yeah. never, and it was never a plot point. It wasn't a plot point. Everyone was like, oh my god, but what about that scene where Ray leaves the scene and Maz Kanata asks Han Solo, who's mm-hmm. the girl? Mm-hmm. She hasn't met her! That's it! Yeah. We cut away from that explanation because it's not important! But the, uh, this fan discourse has kind of started to affect the way these movies are going to be made. Yeah. So this idea that Ray's parentage is a mystery yeah. uh, is now a big part of this. And, and uh, uh, I thought it was solved perfectly well in The yeah, Last Jedi in a way I, that it was a, a uh, twist and also thematically yeah, resonant but, and yeah, the, had a point to make. Yeah, the, the Last Jedi was, for a Star Wars film at the very least, kind of daring. Yeah. Uh, the Rise of Skywalker is a retreat Real hard. It's the right least, back into the familiar. It may uh, be the least daring Star Wars movie. It's, I've it's ever seen. very like even more so than Return of the Jedi. Even more so um, than Solo. Yeah, like or, it or, just it's, feels really. It's just it's like it's it's a you know well told well, tale enough, and it's a slick production. I'm, the action is great, but it is. I don't, I don't is, even agree with all that. It's soft. And it's, it's warm. It's insincere. It's rushed. Yeah. It's fast. The pacing is terrible. You never yeah. get a sense of place. Yeah. Or anytime a new character is introduced, mm-hmm. you don't get a sense of them. Old characters, characters that we've met and spent a lot of time with, are brushed aside like in a way that's rude. Mm. Like, oh, hey, do you, do you even just come, go go up to one of the characters and say, oh, hey, you want to come with us on this mission? No, I'm on computer detail. Like, as though like they're being punished yeah. for being unpopular <laughs> on the internet. Like, it's bullshit. Yeah, yeah. Okay, the, I'm going to give you the gist of the plot here, and I'm going to be very vague. All right, well, we'll, at the we'll begin- get into spoilers. I'm gonna, we'll, get into, we'll announce spoilers because there's some genuine spoiler shit I want to talk about that right. sucks. Um, and I can't think of anything that's good. But they, but o- they the, open the, up with we, uh, the return of an old character. Okay, um, look, it's in the poster. It's literally the first line in, in the in opening. Of, title yeah. crawl. Yeah. Palpatine is back. Apparently he's been back for a bit. That feels like the sort of thing we should have seen uh, and not happen between movies, but okay, let's well, do that. We already had the, the junior version of Emperor Palpatine. Uh, uh, Snoke. Snoke, uh, who who in the first movie was a giant, and I thought that was intriguing. It was just, just a giant hologram. It was just a, just a hologram, which... Make him be a giant! That was cool! Make him be a giant. Make him be a 30-foot-tall monster. Well, that was That's neat, fine. I thought. I don't know, but yeah, like, all right. In but, any uh, case, but they, the, the Emperor is back. Uh, that, uh, that character is out of the story. The Emperor is back yeah. now. And they have... It's played and, by the same actor from the old movies. Ian McDiarmid, who's still around, mm. still still lively and mm. still good. Uh, Kylo Ren is basically on a mission to find the Emperor, and it falls to uh, Rey, Finn, Poe, and C-3PO. Mm. They also need to find the Emperor before he raises an army and conquers the whole galaxy again. Tur- tur- Boom. Tur- That's tur- it. That's yeah. the basic gist of it. I'm not going to give any more than yeah. that. So remember they had a Death Star in Star Wars, uh-huh. and then they couldn't think of anything to do for Return of the Jedi, so they just had another Death Star. Yeah. And then they couldn't they did another Death Star in yeah. Force Awakens. Now there's like 
a thousand Death Stars. Oh yeah, and this time, they're instead all, of looking like instead of looking like boobs, they look like penises. They're, yeah, big big cheese wedge shaped penis Death uh-huh. Stars. If that's not pandering, I don't know what is. Mm. <laughs> like that's so now they have, now they got now Emperor Palpatine's back. He's somehow survived the events of Return of the Jedi, and now he's like hooked up to a big machine and like, some pretty creepy visuals. I, there. Again, again, let's not let's not go into too much yeah, detail. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is the first scene of the movie. I like, know, I know, I know. But like some people, like I, I'm, we're just giving you the basic just so you can right. understand. Basically, it's a bunch of MacGuffin hunts. Mm. We have to go after this thing when we have to go after this thing, even though now that we have this thing, we don't even need that thing. Except it turns out we will later on, but we had no way of knowing that. Mm. Everything is paced really, 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 really fast, especially in the first half. People mm. race from place to place. There's no sense of who everyone is. One of the most tragic things, and I do not envy J.J. Abrams having to do this. Uh-huh. Uh, Carrie Fisher tragically passed away between films. Yeah, yeah. It's so. clear that they wanted her to be in the film and that they had plans for her. They really wanted to really uh, make Leia a more prominent character in this one. What they decided to do was they didn't just have it like in the old title scrawl, tragedy, Leia yeah. died, whatever, between yeah. films. They decided to keep her in the film using footage they had left over from the last two movies. Yeah. And as a result... Feels, Every scene with her is false. It, it, well, it, the, you, can, you can see that they're editing around the fact yeah. that they don't have well, an actor. And there, not even just and, editing, they're writing around because mm. they only have her saying certain mm. things and not like, even necessarily from the same scene. Mm. So it's like... Was, was greater and greater agony. Well, it's like they, they, the sky was now just a covering for her they, dead body. They couldn't write a scene based around what they clearly wanted to write a scene about, which mm. is developing a relationship between uh, uh, Ray and Leia. What they had was whatever Leia said, and so they had to write Ray's dialogue around it. Like, for example, hmm. uh, in like a sort of a sage-like scene where she's going to Leia for advice. This is an actual dialogue from the movie. But let's say hmm. one of the line we had 18 lines of dialogue from Carrie Fisher, and one of them was about how much she loves yo-yos. Instead of not using that line, <laughs> they, wrote they, a scene about they, wrote, they wrote, they would give Ray a line of dialogue. Just, I don't know, I just... Torn between the light and the dark. I feel like a yo-yo. And then she's like, I like yo-yos. You're right. Thank you. Like, it's that's how oh, fake it man. feels. It feels like Plan 9 I, from Outer Space when they're I, trying to shoot around Bella Lugosi. I, I was... Uh, that, that's what I was quoting just now. Yeah. Um, the... Uh I appreciate that more than what they did with uh, Peter Cushing in Rogue One, where they just recreated mm-hmm. his likeness in CGI. Yeah. And, oh, and they did that with Carrie Fisher as well. They made a young More Carrie briefly, Fisher, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, but you know, you saw her. She was yeah, a C- CGI but Carrie Fisher, Carrie Fisher. Carrie Fisher was alive at the time. She actually okayed that. That's true. So and kudos P- to her P- for that. Peter Cushing's estate, sh- surely. Yeah, but it's, I don't think it's the same as Peter Cushing you know. doing it. But okay. Um, so, like, listen, so, listen. I don't envy that. Uh, That's a shitty situation to be in. It's as a bad situation. I think they did the uh, best yeah. they could, but it doesn't work, yeah, and I can't I, tell you otherwise. And the story of the movie is is incredibly simple. They're just looking for. Uh, like a space compass that will lead them to the hidden planet where uh, Emperor Palpatine's hanging out. And that's it. Which is simultaneously incredibly boring and takes up way too much time because there's also character development and all this shit going on with Kylo Ren and will he be redeemed and is Rey going to go to the dark side and all this stuff is the stuff that should be taking time. Hmm. This is the stuff, this is the meat of the story and what they spend way more time on is the garnish. 
<laughs> it's all garnish. It's, all, it's all parsley, and it's like one olive well, of um, food, and actually in the dish. Yeah. I, I know. I know it's uh, really poor form to quote other critics, but Pauline Kale. Okay, <laughs> it's okay to quote Pauline Kale because she's w- well, the cha- one of the champions of the form. True. Um, she called Star Wars when it first came out in the seventies. She was not a big fan of it. Uh, and she called it a box of Cracker Jacks with nothing but prizes. Yep. There's no actual food in there. Yep. And while that's fun, <laughs> y- you need the actual thing you bought. And yeah. uh, I feel like... I think like she was misrepresenting Jager- Star Wars, but I feel like Star Wars would eventually become what she described. Yeah. I think well, Star Wars I, actually I, I, had more depth than that, but not all of the Star Wars well, do. Well, I, I think, especially the first Star Wars, I think gains a lot of its... Uh, power for me mm-hmm. uh, the way it connects to something very primal about kids entertainment from the previous decades because sure. it draws a lot of uh, a lot of its iconography and a lot of its storytelling from like old Fa- flash gordon serials and i feel like it takes a lot of those tropes and a lot of those feelings and just writes them in a bigger modern context it's a handshake between old-fashioned storytelling and modern technology yeah uh and that it has some like thumbprints on it and that it's a little sloppy gives it power when they yep. cleaned it up they're kind of missing the point I of a lot of Star Wars I, I don't like the way the prequels they're, look at all no, I will say this the new trilogy clean, yeah. understands that it, the world needs to look lived in mm-hmm. I don't know why the prequel trilogy didn't George Lucas invented that yeah, yeah. George Lucas invented futuristic shit not looking futuristic mm-hmm. like okay maybe he didn't invent it but he popularized <laughs> it he knew it was important Yeah, he yeah. knew it was important and, this uh, world feel lived in and it just didn't it, in the it, prequels it, it, well it's not that it feels lived in it's that the film feels made hmm. like like it has human handprints all over it and even though it has super hand, okay. super slick special effects technology it does have a lot of uh cornball elements that i think are really part of the lifeblood of the whole series if you're looking at it in the right way sure uh, it's so, so when, when you're dealing with these sort of broad character types that have these big corny speeches and big dialogue and space wizards and light swords when you think of it as a big corny entertainment, I think that's where a lot of, of Star Wars power comes from because yeah. it's drawing on a larger tradition of cinema. When you start to delve into the mythology of it, you're kind of revealing how shallow that mythology is. Well, and we've also, been splashing around in that same shallow pool for 40 fucking years. Well, one of the things that's been very well publicized mm-hmm. about this new trilogy is the fact that they really didn't have a clear plan for all three movies from the beginning, which... Which is argue, fine. Argue, I, well, you I, could argue I like that, extemporaneous you movies, could argue that That's a lot of the way the original trilogy was made. Mm-hmm. You could argue that maybe that's a good thing or a bad thing, but that is how they did it. J.J. Uh, Abrams set up a lot of stuff. Ryan Johnson had a lot of freedom, mm-hmm. and J.J. Abrams had a lot of freedom to do whatever he wanted after that. Mm. A lot of people like sort of complained that The Last Jedi dropped the ball on some things J.J. Abrams set up. I personally disagree with that. I think mm. they went in directions you didn't expect, but I don't think that's dropping the ball. I think there's, an ex- there's a game that a lot of artists play, and then there's like a, a writing version and a drawing version called mm. Exquisite Corpse. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and the writing version is someone writes a sentence and then someone writes the next sentence, but you don't get to read anything but the previous sentence. Mm-hmm. And eventually you've got this very odd sort of Frankenstein story. Yeah. There's also a version of this with illustration where someone draws like part mm-hmm. of an illustration and then you get to see like where the lines sync up, but you don't know what else they drew. And so eventually when everyone's contributed, you get something really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh J.J. Abrams is terrible at that game. J.J. <laughs> Abrams he's, he's is... Good, he's good at starting it, and then he just wants to walk away. He's brilliant at starting yeah. stories. He's great at asking questions. Mm. He's great at introducing characters and asking questions. He's great at it. I argue he's one of the best. He's mm. really excellent. So it's actually a pr- kind of wise choice if you're going to start a new Star Wars series. Brilliant yeah. choice for starting the new series. I, I wasn't on board at first, but when I saw the movie, I'm like, you know what? He did a good job. He fine, did great. Fine, yeah. 
But his mystery box, as he likes to call it, and if you're not familiar with that, J.J. Abrams talks a lot about a storytelling device he likes to use where he teases something really, really important, but he lets the audience sort of figure out what the actual meat of it is. It's a great way to start a story. It's a shitty way to end a story because there's nothing in the box. (laughs) J.J. Abrams handed Ryan Johnson an empty box of promises. (laughs) Ryan Johnson, whether you like what he did or not, I can respect that, filled the box he filled it with character and theme mm. and new ideas and and pushed the franchise in a oh. new direction. And when he gave it back to J.J. Abrams, mm. instead of Dude. going yes and like yeah. a good improv actor, he, he said no box, but. Yeah. He dumped out the box and started over again. Yeah, as that, if I, that, that's, I'm sorry. That's not Ryan Johnson's fault. They okayed his movie. Mm. It is J.J. Abrams' fault and the producer's fault for not continuing the saga mm. in an organic mm. way. I, so, yeah, I they, blame they, the makers of this film for they, that because this blame, movie yeah, does they, not play it, it, at all like they watched The Last Jedi. They are trying really, really hard. Like apart from like one major plot point that Kylo Ren is now in charge. Yeah, there there are no other plot points in the Last Jedi that are really all that important. Well, to this I mean, one. like the, the Luke rebellion... is dead and Trace okay, training. Okay, like, and Luke is dead. And, um, but like, yeah, you could have you could have frankly skipped a lot of the Last Jedi. Yeah, and yeah. you would and, and it's fucking annoying. It's yeah. Is so what we're, it is. we're going back to not just the last movies. We're going back to every single Star Wars movie. Yeah, we're gonna dig out all the characters. We're gonna dig out Palpatine. We're gonna mm. dig out all the cameos. Lando, we can eat. The what, cameos you weren't even expecting. Just yeah, cameo, there's, cameo, there's, cameo, 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 cameo. Here, here's a spoiler I'm gonna give to you. There's Ewoks in the movie. Oh, that's just, well publicized yeah. now. Okay, is it? No, there, okay. There, there was there's a shot of Warwick Davis in an Ewok costume. Oh, okay, but yeah. we won't tell you what they're doing, if anything. But they're there's they're, Ewok, they're in the You do see an Ewok. Which is so weird because, I, I, as I understand it, among in the Star Wars community, the, the Ewoks are not necessarily well liked. They're seen it's been as, explained to me, seen and I buy a, this. a little bit too kiddified for well, Star Wars I, after this, the Empire's whatever. Uh, it's anyway. been explained to me, mm. and I, I again I don't remember it too vividly. Mm. That a lot of the backlash on the Ewoks in Return of the Jedi was that the Ewoks weren't macho enough. And and the point is, they weren't supposed to be. They were supposed to appeal to different types of people. Mm. And that right there might have been the first inkling of how Star Wars was going toxic. About how it needs to fit a very particular, very masculine view of the world. Mm -hmm. And anything but that will be rejected and mocked. Mm -hmm. Um, So, anyway. Um, Okay. it's a Every moment in the movie Mm -hmm. is big. All the moments in between are rushed... Or big. <laughs> Nothing has any weight because everything weighs the same. Yeah, yeah. It's and all it's, huge and none of it lands. A lot of the reveals yeah. are silly and laugh out loud. A lot of the additions to the mythology just do not work. The big climax, I, I listen, I'm not saying this because I'm like, I wasn't paying attention. I was paying attention. I don't think it makes sense. Mm. There's a lot of stuff in there where yeah, I'm just well, like, why is that a thing? And doesn't that single... contradict something you literally just told us in this scene? Uh, this is this is a film that's. I mean, Star Wars has always banked on nostalgia from the, the sure. very start. Well, from and, the big first movie, uh, it was nostalgia for non-Star yeah. Wars stuff, but I, nostalgia. I feel like The Empire Strikes Back and The Last Jedi uh, are the only ones that aren't nostalgic. They're kind of anti-nostalgic. They're mm-hmm. trying to deconstruct a lot, and they're trying to push forward. Yeah, they're put, trying to push forward, blaze a, new, yeah. a new trail. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they always fall back on what what the people have said, and I think the entire 
uh, whole prequel era, like the 90s and 2000s that George Lucas was making stories about the Darth Vader character, mm -hmm. because Darth Vader became more important to the fans than he was to the story. Mm. He's actually not the be-all and end-all of this universe. He's just cool, and people like the costume, and people like yeah. the It was cool voice. in the original trilogy. It was cool in the original trilogy, so let's make Prequel's a whole, so whole series of movies about that guy. Why? That's not important. Well, if you want to, if you want to see how it the, could have been, I don't know if you needed a whole a prequel yeah. trilogy. You could do one movie about the fall of Darth Vader. Might have been cool, yeah, or just do it a flashback sequence. Could I don't know, like, like a, I, five minutes. Look, we can yeah. second guess that all the time. The idea of turning the, the, a sequel, prequel trilogy about yeah. the downfall of a character so, could have worked better than it did. And that is maybe one of the most frustrating things about Star Wars is that it's long ago it became about itself. Yeah. It's not about anything else. It's not about war. It's not about conflict. It's not about the hero with a thousand. It's, it's not even about it's the passion not... of the people making it getting to because George Lucas, yeah, mm. Star Wars wasn't the most original thing ever. It had some original ideas mm. in it, but it was basically, hey, I loved Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers, and I want to do my own take on that. Mm. And that was just him doing his own take yeah, on there's, that. There's, I got that sense. It's a from, big commercial enterprise now. There aren't important artists who are pushing anything forward here, anymore. Here's what I got a sense of: I, in mm. The Force Awakens, J.J. Abrams is like, yeah, I got to play in this toolbox. Last Jedi, Ryan mm. Johnson's like, yeah, I get to play in this toolbox. Mm. Rise of Skywalker. J.J. was like, crap, I have to put all the toys away. No, let's, let's, That's it. That's just him putting all the toys away, making him, sure they get one last putting Toy the, Story 3 yeah, moment the, the, where this is my favorite Billy Dee Williams and yeah, he was really yeah, cool. Yeah. And, and this, is, <laughs> this is my favorite R2-D2. He gets a moment too. And, and yeah, and then like, that's it. That's the mm. whole fucking movie. Mm. There's no time for them to actually breathe and grow and be characters mm. new because they're so busy setting up this new plot that we're just shoehorning in at the at the end here mm. and it all feels really really rushed yeah, it's not and a, then putting everything away it's not a it's not a conclusion it's just yeah a way to sort of like sh shake up the the little snow globe full of star wars toys in front yeah. of you watch them sort of swim around and sink to the bottom and then we just yeah to, to quote you, yeah. they just put it away. All right, so uh, uh, we're not going. We're going to delve into some spoilers now because right, we want to uh, talk about some stuff, some specific right. elements. Well, because not talking about anything specific, mm. and I realize we might have talked more specifics than we even planned to, um, is shitty criticism. Mm. We're giving you broad strokes, and that yeah, gives so, us your, our impressions. But that's not really criticism. We need to talk about some specifics. Well, and, okay, so here's so, here's so, the, so real fast. Just, here's the spoiler moment. No, no, where, well, no, no. Real fast. Thank you very, very much for listening. If this okay, is where we leave you, please come back after you've seen the film if that's what you want. Uh, again, we have lots of other stuff here in the critically acclaimed uh, network. If you're new, uh, we've canceled too soon. We review TV shows that lasted one season or less. We have a letters episode where mm -hmm. we read your emails. Letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. I'm sure we won't get anything about Star Wars. No, definitely not. Um, and uh, and and uh, tons of other stuff as well. We have a Patreon, patreon.com slash criticallyacclaimed network. We're on Twitter at criticallyacclaimed. I'm at William Bibiani. He's at Whitney Seibold. Uh, and uh, officially, I think I can say for both of us, mm -hmm. our critically acclaimed writing for Star Wars Rise of Skywalker is a C minus. Uh, yeah, it's a C minus. Okay. It's, it's really just not worth seeing. And right. um, and now the spoilers the begin. Spo the spoilers begin. Now, I talked about how Star Wars is about itself. They go back to the same kinds of plot points over and over again. Some people have tried to argue that it's the cyclical, cyclical nature, uh, nature of storytelling, which weirdly looks exactly like not being creative. Uh <laughs> No, what a weird, what a weird coincidence! And uh, you know, here's, so here's, the I was, plot point I was, they report. I was, I was just the, on that point. All right. I was writing an article for the Rab about all of J.J. Abrams' movies, mm -hmm. and I was writing a bit about Super Eight, which is one of his better movies. Actually, it's it's very kind derivative, of, but it works. Kind of forgettable, but good. And know? I was thinking about it, and I was writing about how I was, and it's this sort of just realization came to me as I was writing about it, where it's like this homage to a bygone era of storytelling that's never been bygone. 
So it never has the impact. Like yeah. when Star Wars came out, this era of storytelling it was coming back to was dead. Yeah. And so bringing it back was actually really welcome and refreshing and new. The 80s never fucking left. Star Wars hasn't been absent from theaters for a long ass time. At least not for any meaningful length of time. There was this period in the mid 80s to mid 90s where there were no new Star Wars movies. There were tons of books and things. Yeah. But, like, Star Wars has always been around. So, like, the nostalgia for Star Wars isn't nostalgia. It's mm. just, I like this thing I like right now. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway, that's thought. But, yeah. That, anyway, to my point. I apologize. That's <laughs> fine. I was going to lose my opportunity to talk about that. Uh, the, the plot point they repeat this time is that uh, two characters are unexpectedly related. Mm-hmm. That was uh, ever since the end of The Empire Strikes Back, something we've hammered on a lot. Because in, they repeated it in The Return of the Jedi. It turns out uh, Leia is Luke's sister. Oh. Really? That's a dumb idea. I guess even we have the, to go with that now. Even Return of the Jedi is kind of mildly embarrassed by that plot point. Mm. Where Obi-Wan's just like, oh yeah, well there there is, uh, you do have a sister. Oh, is it Leia? Shit, yeah, okay, we were going to do that really dramatically, but sure, ruin it. <laughs> like, just say it when she's not even in the room. And like, then, uh, go, it's terrible storytelling. We, we, get, we get to see Luke and Leia being born in a later movie, I which know. is so dumb. And yeah. uh, Oh, and the way that they, hoping... like, race, like, okay, listen, I know you're dying in mid-childhood, but quick, name them. Okay, yeah. Luke, Luke, I don't know, like, what, what's another L word? Leia, go. I, I wish it was like, Luke, that one's Luke. Leia, that one's Leia. And that one's Shecky. And then it's like, there's a third one that we just never heard about before, and it's like, oh, what the fuck? Okay. I love your Shecky theory. I wish Shecky. There's a third Shecky Skywalker is out there somewhere. <laughs> the big reveal in Rise the Rise of the Skywalker though is uh that Ray's parents actually were significant. Uh-huh. Uh, we learned that her parents uh, her father, I think, specifically, was the son of Emperor Palpatine. She's, she's Emperor she's, Palpatine's granddaughter. She's Emperor Palpatine's granddaughter, which is so... Okay, here's here's why this frustrates me. Mm-hmm. And this is why this is not the same mm-hmm. as what Ryan Johnson did in The Last Jedi. Because J.J. Mm-hmm. Abrams never actually said her parents were important. People inferred that. Yeah. In fact, if you read interviews with Daisy Ridley when they like after the movie came out, mm-hmm. she talks about how... That was a mystery? We didn't think that was a mystery. Yeah, they didn't write a we mystery. Just, we, it just in wasn't movement. in there. Yeah. Just, you just assumed. It's a fan theory. That's so all Ryan is. Johnson made a movie in which he took that expectation that her parents supposed to be a big deal, mm. and he inverted it. It was the Darth Vader twist from Empire in reverse, where the, yeah. instead of the villain saying, I'm your kind, father, the villain is saying, there's no twist. It's actually kind of clever. And the whole, and it turned <laughs> the message of the movie, yeah. it turned the message of the movie into, it's not about bloodlines, it's not about lineage, mm. anyone can be a hero. J.J. Abrams took over and instead of going yes and went no but actually you do need to be part of a bloodline in order to be an important hero you have to be a child of a Jedi or a Sith Lord it's really super important now and it would be like if in Return of the Jedi you've waited two or three years however long it was between Empire and Return of the Jedi Mm. and you had that big cliffhanger where Vader said I'm your father and again you're just taking the villain's word for it I'm sure there were a lot of people like maybe that's not true maybe he was just dicking him around but then Obi-Wan Kenobi I kind of of wish that that had been the twist at the beginning of of the Mm. next film maybe but but, no I was just dicking with him imagine how how unsatisfying that Mm. is like if if in that scene where Obi-Wan Kenobi sits the ghost of Obi-Wan Kenobi sits Mm. down with Luke and just explains what happened because we need that. We this is weird. Someone yeah. tells the real story. Imagine if Obi Wan had just said, "No, he's just some guy." Yeah, that would have been such a what it's a weird, <laughs> what a disappointing. Like after yeah, that that's... huge big revelation, and that's what J.J. Abrams does here. When when Kylo Ren said, "Your parents were nobodies, and you're nobody, but that you're still special to me." Hmm. 
Kylo Ren in this movie says, okay, listen, I did some more taking, and it turns out they were nobody, but by choice, because mm. they were somebody. Oh, God. Fuck off. Yeah, like, it's, fuck, it's, that's it's terrible, such, it's such that's a, terrible a, storytelling. Terry storytelling. It's, it's just a dumb idea, because yeah. it's, yeah, again, it's just sort of falling back into that safe, really familiar plot idea that all of these characters are somehow interconnected, which only goes to stress how little this story can move. Yeah, it's, it's very insular. It's if you're not directly if you're gonna, related, you're kind of not important. If, if you're going to tie other, all of the ends together, you're just going to get a little tiny knot that, it, where nothing's happening. Look at the other characters who aren't uh, Kylo Ren slash Ben Solo, mm. Rey, the Emperor, mm-hmm. and Leia. Look at, look at everyone else in this movie and the journey that they go through. They don't. <laughs> like Poe like becomes a, a better leader we already worked on that a little bit in The Last Jedi so it's not really huge mm. Finn I mean Finn went on a huge character arc in The Last Jedi where he stopped being a follower and actually developed his own morality and sense of agency mm. he's done mm. it's one of the reasons I mean granted okay it's maybe tricky as to how to build this back up again but he, he's there's just nowhere else for him to go so they just have everyone just be around being plucky Finn and Poe are flirting like nobody's business I really mm. wanted them to make out they're so good together oh, no. well, it's that, so it's, frustrating that they didn't end up going anywhere with that there was a, a little bit of uh, I, I forgot who said this but they said I, I don't care who's gay in Star Wars I care if gay people have rights in the real world that's true uh, so you know th- this like overwhelming concern that there aren't gay characters in Star Wars is is a little churlish but they should be in there well and there's, the, there's there's actually a gay kiss at the end of this movie when everyone's celebrating yeah for like a half second a half you barely, fucking second you barely see it like listen representation I, mm. representation is important mm. alright so you can argue that it's more important that we fix things in the real world and that's true mm. but representation in media goes a long way towards normalizing things that a lot of people consider to be especially, alien yeah, to them especially and, in a big and, and, pop, pop entertainment yeah. good, good venue to have some representation yeah when you, when you that's that can be really really helpful and really airballing the obvious one mm. is weird yeah I know it's so Disney, it's, but it's still weird. I think it's like uh, um, Sherlock Holmes and Watson in yeah. the more recent Sherlock Holmes, the Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes movies, where there's a lot of gay tension between those two characters. Oh, even more so in, in the, the Benedict Cumberbatch in, series. Oh, 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 oh yeah. Okay. In, in, the oh, sec- yeah. in that second movie, what is it? Book of Shadows or whatever yeah. it was. Game oh, of Shadows. Game of Shadows. Yeah. Um, Book of Shadows is Blair Witch. Uh, <laughs> There's there's a few scenes where they're like flirting and they're like one of them is dressed in drag and uh, there's a scene where Robert Downey Jr. is like in his underwear saying you have to lay down next to me like they're really kind of playing up yeah. the, the gayness but they don't actually have an affair yeah no. they're they're straight characters still which is frustrating and I think they're trying to do that trying to sort of say oh no there's there's like some gay tension between these characters but we can't actually have them be gay I know it's like tr- trying to do both they're they're gay in a way that doesn't mean anything I know and they're, um, yeah and you're right there's a gay kiss. If if you're in the bathroom, if you look down at your popcorn, if you blink, yeah, it's gone. Like it's just not. Like it it a goes thing. so fast that I actually kind of had to say, "Oh wait, that oh that was a thing." Yeah, it's not. Yeah, no. And and I appreciate that they're trying to make it incidental, but it's so incidental that it mm. may as well not be in there. Um, Ra- random lesbian B is not the first gay okay. character in I, Star Wars. I, I, my head is swimming because there's so much that I, yeah. I, I want to talk about. The MacGuffins don't fucking make any sense. Mm. So there's only like two things in the universe that can lead yeah, people little... to the secret planet of the Sith. Except for all the people who are there. Hey, remember the Knights of Ren who got mm. built up a bit in the J. James first movie? Sat yeah. out the next one and now they're here. First off, they suck. Secondly, how did they get there without that device? Yeah. They were already there. Yeah, well, you built, you made up this plot point. You didn't have to not follow it. You made it up in this movie. 
It's it's I think it I think it was the sort of like dark magic thing. So uh-huh. th- those little compasses they say are like have the dark magic inside of uh-huh. them. So. Did you did you notice that there is a scene in this movie that is lifted almost wholesale from Monty Python on the Holy Grail? Oh, which one? Well, it's basically they find a a, a knife, like a, a ritual Sith blade oh, yeah. with with uh inscriptions on it mm. that only oh, R2-D2 can read, yeah. and R2-D2 reads it and says, oh, yeah, I know where it is. Well, tell us where it is. It's, oh, it says, oh, C-3PO says that. C-3PO. Yeah. C-3PO says, I know, I know where it is now. I've, I've read it. And they say, oh, tell us where it is. Well, I'm not allowed to translate Sith artifacts. Mm. And they're like, ah. <laughs> ah. The castle. And then a giant monster shows up. Literally the Black Beast of Ah <laughs> shows up right there. Oh, I wish the, I wish the animator had suffered a fatal heart attack. Uh, and then and then, they, the and then they write it, and then they they do they write it away like as quickly as they can with the Deus Ex Machina and then they just move on. Mm-hmm. It's a scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It's pretty funny. And then like they're about to escape in a ship that just happens to belong to the guy who killed Ray's parents. Mm-hmm. So many coincidences. And then there's a bit where Chewbacca gets like abducted. 10 feet away from them and nobody notices and then they put him on a transport ship and then Ray in a kind of uh, a badass moment uh, grabs it with the force like in in the far back and it's like oh that's actually really cool okay cool and then Kylo Ren shows up uh, yeah Kylo Ren shows up and forces it the other way and she forces so hard she she, her force turns into lightning (laughs) she uses force lightning and she blows up the ship and Chewbacca dies she murders Chewbacca and it's like Oh, holy shit. Okay. That, that well, would have been a fun twist. That right? would have been a hell of a thing. And like, she feels really, really bad about it. Mm. And then it turns out that that was some other transport ship that was 10 feet away from them. And they missed the other transport ship that was and 10 feet I'm... away from them. And when at the love at the end, when she finds out, like, not the end, when she finds out Chewbacca's alive, mm. and she's just like, oh, thank God Chewbacca's dead. All I killed was a bunch of random stranger prisoners of war. Yeah. I'm strangers. off the hook. Like, <laughs> what? Look, uh, you're, you're describing a lot of these, like, little sort of plot details. These are things I find really are, distracting. None of, there's no scene that works on its own merits. There are a lot of really great movies that have a lot of these little type of, types of plot problems. Sure. And that comes from the way we've been encouraged to think about Star Wars, thanks to the, the shape of the discourse. Mm. Things like Clerks have started to... Have, the conversations now have to start with overthinking. And I'm not accusing you of overthinking, no, no, no. but I just, what I, I am saying is that... I just want to have some sense of internal logic. That's okay. all I care about. A little bit of internal logic. I'll, I'll, internal illogic is fine, so long as the film is working on some other level. Mm-hmm. If, if it's grabbing you emotionally, if there's some interesting character stuff, uh, if there's a really important philosophy or message that's in the movie, I'm willing to forgive a lot in terms of plotting. Here's actually a great the example. The problem with okay. Star Wars is that it's become so heavily reliant on plotting yeah. that we're encouraged to see it first. And the way the conversation around Star Wars has evolved, we're encouraged to overanalyze it first. So when we're watching a Star Wars movie, a new Star Wars movie for the first time, we can only ever see that stuff. Well, and especially because they're being made that way. Again, now. this movie is so rushed and mm. the character's actual like development mm. is it's there, but it's like only in big bullet points and mm. it never feels sincere that all we have left to focus on is the story. Um, the thing I was going to bring up because it's actually a parallel in this mm. movie is Casablanca. Mm. Okay. Considered by many people to be one of the greatest movies ever made. I won't dispute it. Uh, There's a plot point in Casablanca, which is bullshit. And it's the entire plot of the movie, which Mm. is letters of transit. The idea of letters of... Everyone's stuck in in Casablanca, and it's this sort of uh, occupied territory by the Nazis, but technically it is a port of call. And if you have transit papers, you can leave and escape to America or wherever else there isn't a war going on. Mm. Um, At the beginning of the movie, Peter Lorre shows up, and he has... 
letters of transit that will, get, that will take anyone. They don't have a name on them. They're like a blank check. And they will take anyone anywhere, no matter who they are, even if they're like wanted by the Nazis, the Nazis would have to let them go. That's bullshit. <laughs> they made that up. It's yeah. just something for people to fight over. Rick has something incredibly valuable, mm-hmm. and he has to choose what to do with them. What's the right thing to do? Is he going to use it selfishly? Is he going to use it selflessly? Mm-hmm. What's he going to do? That's the point. Mm-hmm. There's a bit in this movie where they end up on a planet where Poe had been before, and they meet a character played by um, Carrie Russell. Oh, yeah. um, and uh, they had a past together, and <sighs> she's stuck on this planet, and she has... Letters of Transit. She has a little a little medallion that is like from the First Order that will it's, take her it's, literally it's a anywhere. Get, get out of the Empire free card. Yeah, and she makes yeah. a big deal out of this. Like this is this is my ticket yeah, off of this thing. And then when they have to escape and like bring mm. the information to the war effort and everything, she, she very heroically gives them that thing. It's a bullshit contrived plot point, but whatever, it works. Mm. But then later on, I think Carrie Russell, her face is covered throughout yeah. most of her performance, and I yeah. think she actually gives a good. I like her good good performance through the mask. I, I like so. her. Too. I think Carrie Russell's an underrated actor mm. in a lot of ways. Um, so I'm like, I'm with you there. It's contrived, but okay. Mm. But then later in the film, the First Order blows up that planet. And then later in the film, Carrie Russell shows up, which means... <laughs> she got off. Which means she didn't need that fucking medallion in the first place, which means mm. the thing you made up in this film <laughs> meant nothing. You could have just left that out. They could have just left. Oh god! I, the medallion I, served no dramatic or emotional function. So it not, doesn't work. I'm so not focused on that kind of stuff. But I'm, I'm, it's all I can yeah. think about because I'm feeling nothing from yeah, this movie. Yeah, there are huge beats here mm. where people kiss. Mm. And oh my god, they finally kissed. And I felt fucking nothing because it's stupid. Mm. Towards the end of the movie, they're all fighting on the, on the Sith homeworld. Mm-hmm. Emperor Palpatine wants Rey to kill him, at which point, and this is news to me, I don't know if this is always part of canon or not, like, all the souls of the Sith will flow into her and she will become the new, like, yeah, like, like, like carrier of the Sith it's, virus it's or like, whatever. Yeah, like, they're, like only a few people have it. It's like in the, that movie The One with Jet Li, where if yeah. you kill all of your parallel selves, you absorb their powers. Yeah. And I think that's, like, so basically, if there's she a kills, finite amount of Sith power, and if there's fewer Siths, they're more powerful. If she kills Palpatine in a ritual thing, she will basically become the new Palpatine mm. and her soul will be lost forever. Um, but then it turns out that this thing we made up, her and Kylo Ren are part of a dyad, and they're so powerful oh that the Emperor can just suck the souls out of them and then be all powerful again and be really so cool, so and, his, and his arthritis is cleared up. He doesn't need to put his soul into uh, Ray's body; he can just suck out their souls, and now he's stronger. But here's the fucking thing: and this they, is he sucks their souls out, and then they're okay. Like I a few minutes that. later, does he keep on sucking their I don't souls? Know. It's maybe, like maybe the... it's like Princess Bride, where he sucks fifty years of their life away or whatever. But <laughs> not to fifty. But at, but then, hmm. when Ray kills him, she doesn't become the new Sith Lord. You hmm. just explained that five minutes <laughs> yeah. ago, that that was the threat, that was the thing, but it turns out it's fine. Kind, because I kind of noticed that. Yeah, and like he's shooting Force Lightning at her, and she's like deflecting it with her lightsaber, hmm. and he's like, ha 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 ha, that doesn't do anything. But it turns out she has two lightsabers, hmm. and, she's, and he's like, oh shit, my one weakness. Hmm. Two lightsabers. <laughs> what does that even mean? Pushes it back to that she's got two lights. It's the force. It's supposed to be a thought process. It's supposed to be like feelings, not who has two lightsabers. It's all that kind of shit. It looks cool. 
to see her fighting off Force Lightning with with two lightsabers from two beloved characters. It means nothing. there's, there's There's no meaning. There's no theme. There's not even this idea that history will repeat itself or that evil has been defeated. Yeah. It is just a, a dull commercial exercise where yeah. they're just m- milking it once again. Yeah. It, it feels like... So little thought went into this. Yeah. They just thought about big moments, but they didn't actually think about how it work as a mm. narrative, how it works thematically, how it works in conjunction with the rest of the nonology. It just they, they, feels like a bunch of stuff. It's they, they, so soulless they, and corporate. D- Disney bought the, the cow, and they started milking it, and milking yeah. it, and milking it, and... Ryan Johnson came in and said, well, what if we taught the cow how to dance? <laughs> At least that's different, right? And, again, and I then just, they shoved yeah. him aside and they just got another bucket of milk and threw it on the audience and now we're done. The safer they get, uh-huh. the less they do. Well, like, the, Force the Awakens more... was, was daring because it was the first one to take it in a new place because mm. everything else was just circling the prequels. Yeah. Rogue One was, at the very least, different in tone. It was more warlike. It was actually, like, the first time we'd done an, an interquel like that mm. in, like, live action. So that was at least different. Mm. Last Jedi was a big fucking deal. And as well it should be. It made shit tons of money. And it pushed the franchise in new directions. Solo was the one that felt completely safe and boring. Yeah. There's stuff I like about Solo. I think Alden Ehrenreich's really good in it. There's fun bits. But it's the one that just, it just felt like we were just circling everything and we had no new ideas. Mm. This is worse than that. Because this is trying to push it forward while also contributing nothing uh, except kind of bullshit mythology. It it already felt lost to me with Rogue One. And so when they... That's, I think, why I was sort of of struck by The Last Jedi. But then, yeah, I saw the the Han Solo movie. Sloppy mess where we're just going to refer to stuff. And, oh, let's bring back Darth Maul. Like, who cares? Apparently no one, because we're not going to get the conclusion of that. And yeah, (laughs) No, it's going to be a new trilogy. No, stop saying the word trilogy. Stop it. There's nothing magical about a trilogy. It's just the beginning. It's just movies. (laughs) You just make a lot of them. You stopped doing trilogies a long time ago. And if you make four of them, please call it a tetralogy. Quadrilogy isn't a word. (laughs) You made that up. Made it up for the alien box (laughs) set back when there were only four of them. Um, so now, listen, and now, now there's six. And there's, they call it a six trilogy. We're gonna be dissecting this movie for fucking ever because it's Star Wars. But I gotta tell you, man, we, 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 I, we can I'm stop. So there's, glad... there's nothing in here to dissect, and that's no, the frustrating thing. No, about we're gonna be forced it. to because people oh, won't shut up about true. it. That's the thing that frustrates me. All right. This is so boring as filmmaking. I mean, mm. yeah, it's a lot of incident, and maybe you might it's be entertained. It, but you know like, what? It, the production value is really slick. Sure. There's a lot of good visuals. I like all the settings. Mm-hmm. Uh, the you know, just I don't the, know if we need another half movie on a desert planet. I suppose not but the, uh, yeah. there's a, a lot of good just like use of color and lighting it's just all very very good looking in terms of uh, a production I, my point is I know that this is because uh. it's Star Wars because it's such a big movie mm. um, that whether it makes more money than any Star Wars before or whether it flops or whether Murder of Mouth really kills it after a while or whether it's just like the prequels where it's a big deal and then people just decide later that they didn't like it and then 20 years later people decide it's a classic because they grew up with it <laughs> Oh, God, it's, I not, kill it's not worth it. Oh. This movie just isn't worth it. It doesn't look like the people involved cared. Yeah. There's a few people in the cast who look like they cared. I can tell Adam Driver is trying to make this work, and he almost does mm. for fits and starts. Um, but it's not good, and it's really not worth it. And if I've liked Star Wars before, but this has made me lose kind of all interest that this is what they're going to do with it. Mm. This is like, we're going to end the series. And this is what you got? Return of the Jedi brought back a lot of stuff, but at least the big ending with Luke and Vader and the Emperor was huge and emotional (laughs) and felt like we went somewhere. I love that bit. That's one of the best bits in all of Star Wars because it felt like it was really important and it felt like earned. Mm. Luke's rage was real. 
Yeah. Nothing about this movie is real. No. It just feels really perfunctory. And that pisses yeah. me off. It's yeah, and, it's, and there's it's, all this it's a waste. There's all this talk. Oh, and the fans will like it. We made something for the fans. Please, makers of Star Wars, make something for yourselves because yeah. that's what we want. You can't, you can't, you can't we, try we, to please that is a to, billion people. That is you to say, can't. we we want something we don't know yet. Yeah, and I, I don't. We didn't know we wanted Star Wars when we got Star Wars. Hmm, yeah, we, no one knew. Yeah. Otherwise, we would have been making it before. So, you know, there, and now all this talk about how this gigantic entertainment conglomerate has bought up this property and they're just going to keep on milking and milking and milking only fills me with despair and that this was the way they decided to end it. Mm-hmm. As somebody with a who's really not, loud whimper. As, as, yeah, as, as somebody who's not a fan of this series, I'm disappointed. As somebody who is a casual fan of the yeah. series, I'm disappointed. And I think if I was a serious fan of it, like I, like I really define myself by my love of Star Wars, mm. I would be despondent right now. Yeah, seriously. Um... Anyway, I know a lot of you are going to disagree. I know a lot of you are going to agree. Mm. Let's try to keep the discourse civil, okay? Can we do that? <laughs> like, agree, celebrate your comments all you want, but don't just like jump in everyone's mentions and get really angry and start these long debates that aren't going to get anywhere because it's just a matter of taste. Let's have a pleasant conversation about it. I'm happy to re- read a lot of emails about it. If you write them in, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. You don't have to write in about Star Wars, but if you must, that's the place for it. We'll talk about them on our show, We've Got Mail. That's it for us. Thank you very, very much for listening. Again, patreon.com slash criticallyacclaimednetwork. I'm on Twitter at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what?